0: This is Jocko Podcast number 342 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. The explosion rocked them, the blast deafening in the night. For an instant it let their lit their dirty blood-smeared faces, their hollow eyes set in hopeless determination. A few more shells crashed around them, none as close as the first. Each blinding flash shone upon the corpses lying across the battlefield, gruesome evidence of the fight that had raged over the past days. Hundreds lay dead over the hilltop outpost. The bodies of South Vietnamese paratroopers mixed with those of their determined North Vietnamese enemy. The hellacious battle had allowed the paratroopers to recover only some of their fallen comrades. They'd wrapped the number in their plastic ponchos and placed them in trenches. That was a while ago, earlier in the fight, when there'd been time to render a modicum of respect. Later, they'd stacked bodies in rows as they were able. Most of the dead, though, were strewn where they'd been cut down in the last hours of combat, punctured, torn, dismembered, and shredded, grotesque reflections of their final violent seconds of life. The explosion stopped the dark returned only the moans of the wounded pierced the silence of the night the stench of death filled the nostrils of the last two men fighting smoke choked their lungs they waited in anticipation they heard orders shouted from across the field they sensed movement as another attack wave swept toward them The American advisor leaned close to his Vietnamese counterpart and exclaimed, shit, here they come again. The reply in broken but well-practiced English was resolute. I know. We fight. We fight more. The enemy once again rose from the darkness, tearing through the night, coming at them as vague shapes, screaming and shooting, throwing grenades as they advanced closer and closer still. Both U.S. Army Advisor Special Forces Major John Joseph Duffy and South Vietnamese Major Lee Van May, the senior surviving battalion officer, knew this was the final assault. Bullets whizzed by them. A grenade exploded ripping a hole in Major May's chest he gasped for air John Duffy already wounded several times himself looked over his left shoulder he nodded satisfied seeing the decimated force all that was left of the once mighty 11th Airborne Battalion escaping down the hillside John and May, the rear guard, were all that stood between the remnants of the battalion and their annihilation. They'd been out of food for days. They had no water left in their canteens. Their ammunition was nearly gone. But still, the American and his South Vietnamese comrade fought, and still the enemy came. There was no talk of surrender no thought but to kill as many as they could before they were themselves cut down where they squatted on the edge of their abandoned positions. Lee Van May strained to speak. Fight, Duffy, fight. They battled with everything that remained in their hearts and souls, but the end of their road was only minutes away. They knew they were about to die. And that right there is the opening of an incredible book, which is called Extraordinary Valor, which is about the defense of Charlie Hill in Vietnam. And this book is written by retired Colonel William Reeder, who was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, who has been on this podcast before, podcast number 63, and on that podcast, we discussed Colonel Reader's first book, which is called Through the Valley, which follows Colonel Reader's combat experiences from flying a OV-1 Mohawk in support of secret missions in North Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, eventually switching to pilot the AH-1G Cobra gunship from the 361st Aerial Weapons Company, call sign Pink Panther. And it was in that duty that Colonel Reeder was shot down, evaded the enemy for three days, was eventually captured, imprisoned in a jungle prisoned camp, tortured, mock executed, and finally forced to march north to the Hanoi Hilton. And in that grueling march where seven of the 26 POWs in his group were killed and upon arriving at the Hanoi Hilton where he suffered the rest of his with the rest of his American POWs until he was finally released after 320 days of captivity so to hear that story go listen to that podcast and and to get the actual full story get the book through the valley there are it's it's a harrowing story and so many lessons to be learned But prior to that ordeal, then Captain Reader flew in direct support of Major Duffy and the defense of Charlie Hill. And he knew that that was a story of courage and valor that needed to be shared. So he spent years compiling data and reviewing records and interviewing participants and giving his own personal account in this book extraordinary valor and it is an honor to have Colonel Reeder here with us again to discuss this new book and his experiences from this battle and how this battle unfolded. Colonel Reeder, thank you for joining us again. It's an honor to have you. Thank you, Jaco. So, what made you decide to write this book
1: there's a little bit of a story involved, so I will go ahead and, and share it. Uh, when I wrote my first book on my captivity, uh, that book wasn't published until 2016, as I remember. So that was decades after, after that experience in Vietnam. But it was a book that I had wanted to write. I just never found the time staying on active duty, commanding units. It was just uh, always too busy. Uh, finally, I found the time, sat down, and started to put pen to paper, And all of these memories and recollections that I thought were right there because I had lived that experience, uh, well, when I started writing, yes, some of those recollections were right there. I remembered things crystal clear. Other things after all those years were a little bit fuzzy. Uh, So I wanted to be sure that I had all of my information correct, all my facts correct, uh, particularly in uh, in the war that led up to my getting shot down and captured. Uh, so I would talk to guys from my unit to, that I could get a hold of, talk to returned prisoners that I had been with to be sure I had everything as, as right as could be. One of the battles that I mentioned, and I think it only gets a few paragraphs in my first book, was this battle at Firebase Charlie. And I talked to the other crew member, uh, Dan Jones, actually led our mission there. I was flying his wing. Uh, he shared what he recalled. Uh, another one of our pilots, Forrest Snyder, uh, shared what he recalled, uh, but to get full detail, I think it was Forrest recommended to me, he says, hey, you need to get a hold of the American advisor who was on the ground with that airborne battalion and, and get some information from him. Uh, so I tracked down the advisor, John Duffy. Uh, I got a hold of John. I hadn't spoken to him since the war, and now this is however many decades later, and uh, said essentially, you know, John, I, I, uh, great to make contact with you. Uh, and he was enthused that we made contact with him. And as you see, we may bring out in the discussion later, our mission that night that he was overrun, that you read that part, uh, we showed up in the nick of time to save the day. So he credits uh, myself and Dan Jones, who was flying lead, with saving his life, as does Levan May. Uh, so he shared the information that I needed to get that battle correct for the few paragraphs I had in the first book. Uh, but as I talked to him over, I must have talked to him a half a dozen times getting that material uh, over, over different days. He started dropping a hint uh, that, uh, you know, that, that was just a really intense battle. It, it was probably one of the most intense battles in the Vietnam War. And I had no idea that, that only 37 guys had survived out of a 471-man uh, battalion, uh, plus a few other stragglers, which later, later showed up uh, uh, later on. So he started dropping these hints. Hey, it's a, you know somebody ought to write the history of uh, of that battle. And then he found and knew that I had a Ph.D. And, <laughs> and retired colonel and had written that book. And so finally, I said, John, okay, I'll I'll write I'll write it up. Uh, what I was thinking at the time is, uh, you know, I'll take care of John and I'll write this maybe a 20-page monograph. I'll get the facts down and, and I'll be done with it. But as I started talking to him in more detail and got to meet Levan May and talk to him, others involved in the battle, I, I soon saw that there was really a, a, a substantial story there that needed to be told. And rather than a 20-page monograph that I would crank out in two to three weeks, I spent four years researching and writing this book uh, to, to get it done. And I'm, I'm very glad that I did. I, I, I know that it is a story that needed to be shared. Uh, and, uh, and also, it, it, sh- it uh, shines a new light on Vietnamese forces. Uh, Vietnamese forces during the war and since the war have gotten generally bad press on how they performed in combat. Uh, most of that was well-deserved. A lot of Vietnamese units, uh, though they had some well-intended soldiers, they did not have good leadership. Corrupt leadership and competent leadership and there are story after story of Vietnamese units not fighting well uh, retreating in the face of, of, of the enemy uh, But what I found in, in researching this book extraordinary valor is that was not at all the case with their elite forces uh, Their Marines their Rangers and most especially their paratroopers uh, their airborne units were the 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 uh, top top-notch units that fought well fought with courage and as I did my research, I confirmed that, and that is the story that I tell in this book. Uh, the book follows the life of the American advisor. It follows the life of uh, Le Van May, who ends up assuming command of the unit after the commander is killed, and they're the two big heroes. So the book is their story leading up to the battle, and, uh, and that was how I came to write the book and why I wrote the book. And I think the important message that comes out of the book is the Vietnamese Airborne uh, they called themselves, were known in Vietnam as the Mudo, uh, the Red Hats, uh, the angels from the sky, fought very, very, very well in just about every single uh, combat they were involved in, and most especially the 11th Arvind Airborne Battalion on Charlie Hill was extraordinarily valorous.
0: In in reading your book, you start to realize the, the way that they – that this unit was held up and this battle was held up almost like the battle of Thermopylae with the 300 Spartans that died to a man trying to protect the city. It's like the same thing happened here. They were trying to hold this hill and there's songs about it in the lore of the Vietnamese at the time. This was, this, this unit was like the 300 Spartans. Is that a safe assessment?
1: Yeah, it is. That, that battle became a a, a landmark in, uh, in Vietnamese history uh, the commander, as I said, was killed. He became a national hero, was promoted posthumously to colonel. Uh, they had banners to him all over Saigon and parades in, in his honor. Uh, there uh, is a book written about uh, the, uh, the battle. I think it's something like The Red Flames of Summer. And then there was a song that was uh, written about the battle uh, that is still played at, uh, at some uh, Vietnamese gatherings that get together and, and we'll, uh, we'll play that song about uh, Charlie Hill.
0: The other interesting thing I found is there's recordings of you guys in the air. There's, there's I listened I listen to at least probably 40 minutes of these call for fires, and just like, I was a, I was a radio man, so I, I wasn't surprised when this happened, but you can hear the aircraft really well, right? and you can barely hear Duffy, he's all broken, but, but man, it's amazing to listen to this stuff happening. These recordings are incredible.
1: They are, and that uh, that that recording in particular was part of the additional evidence. Uh, and we may get into Duffy's award situation here later, and I'll, I'll have more comment on that. Uh, but that recording surfaced late, just just several years ago. Uh, two of my principal sources to be sure that my information was correct were were you know hard hard copy or hard vocal sources sure. <clears throat> that couldn't be disputed. One was that recording. That recording was made uh, by one of the helicopter crew members that went in and, and picked up the survivors of that battle the next morning uh, after they were overrun on the hill that night. And so, yes, we have audio, word-for-word word conversations between all those helicopters and Duffy talking on he, – he had his Prick 77 radio shot off his back Uh, He had two aircraft survival radios uh, with him as well. So he's talking on one of those survival radios on on the emergency push uh, to those helicopter crews. So we had that recording. Uh, Also, John Duffy, during the battle, uh, kept a a log uh, of a journal of everything that happened every day and call signs and coordinates and, and all that. So those two things together helped give me the factual information or confirmed factual information for the book. Uh, as well as, and I'll add this comment now, uh, if you want to get an emotional feel for John Duffy and an emotional feel for this book, Duffy uh, turned out to be a poet <clears throat> after the war, and he has a website, uh, ePoetryWorld.com, John Duffy. If you Google that, you'll get to it. But yeah, all of this is, is captured the emotion of it in, in poems that he has written over the years since.
0: Yeah, and, and the title of one of those books is, is The Battle for Charlie. And it's a book of poems, and it's chronological accounting of what happened. Really cool to read. And I mean, I've got some of that that we'll read during this um, that I highlighted. But yeah, definitely an interesting guy that had a a cool viewpoint on the world.
1: He's a fascinating guy.
0: Um, With that, let's, let's get into the book a little bit. And the book, like you already said, it's staged around the two main leaders in this event, or who ended up being the main surviving leaders in this event. Leigh Van May and Major John Duffy. So you start off, and again, look, go buy the book, because the details that you've got in there are are incredible to read. I'm gonna kind of give some highlights so people know what we're dealing with. So Leigh Van May was born in 1942. He's the second of nine children. His father was a farmer. But I guess they raised buffalo. That's what they did for a living.
1: They had, but they raised crops. Okay. But they had the two buffalo to, to, (laughs) yeah, whatever you do, plow the fields and, and, yeah. Uh,
0: Okay, got it. So the the buffalo were more like the tractors. Yes, exactly. So they were regular farmers. Um, He was a studious kid, hardworking, and he ends up getting accepted into the Vietnamese National Military Academy. Interestingly graduates the same day that Kennedy was assassinated November 22nd 1963 uh, And he had you know, he, he kind of talked about the fact that He looked at Kennedy as this great man and this was you know somebody that he saw as a beacon of freedom and all this right. He gets commissioned as a second lieutenant and he asks for immediate combat assignment, right? Um, and with that, well, when you're in Vietnam, I guess it doesn't take that long if you want to go to combat to get in it. I'm going to go to the book here real quick. Uh, he's a platoon leader at this point. Contact. Heavy enemy fire stopped their advance. The radio cracked with a call from the adjacent platoon. One, two, one, two. This is one, three. Over. May grabbed the handset from his radio operator. One, three. This is one, two. Over. One, two, we are pinned down here. Heavy fire, lots of VC, maybe a company. Roger, one, three, I'll try and advance and relieve pressure on you. May's soldiers stopped in their tracks. He needed them to advance across an open expanse. His greatest anxiety in pondering his role in combat was not fear for his life, but rather whether his soldiers would follow his orders. He knew what was expected of him. He worried he might not be able to deliver. He spied two soldiers nearby whom he felt could be key to his budding plan. One carried a 30 caliber Browning automatic rifle, known affectionately as the BAR. The other held a 45 caliber Thompson submachine gun. Both designs dated to World War I. May boasted a more modern weapon, an M1 grand carbine that had seen service in World War II. Come with me, he called to the pair. Stay close. May turned to the platoon, raised his arm, and shouted, follow me. They moved forward, arcing to the left, circling the enemy's right side. May stayed in the lead, firing his carbine. His two-man assault force made good use of their automatic weapons. The rest of the platoon moved to keep up, placing effective fire as they advanced. They took casualties. Individuals fell, wounded, some crying in pain. Still, his soldiers fired and maneuvered behind his lead until he got them into a position to attack directly into the enemy's flank may led the onslaught insurgents fell dead dying and wounded they broke they ran the second platoon pursued until may called them back to consolidate on the position they would just overrun he congratulated them on their victory they looked at him with the respect and admiration he had earned may exhibited extraordinary leadership on that first mission Within days the Army promoted him to first lieutenant and placed him in command of the first company, and he routinely led company in battalion operations. The action set his reputation as a respected combat leader. Earning that he's earning that rank.
1: Yeah, he is. You know, this reminds me of something to keep in mind, too, that we lose sight of. Americans went to Vietnam one-year deployments and came home uh, infantry guys and aviators got to go two times some three times john duffy ends up going four times uh, but those vietnamese uh, we mentioned his commission date so we're going back to the early and mid-60s and those vietnamese were fighting day after day year after year throughout that whole war uh, as we would do our rotations uh, I, I can only guess. I've not even asked. May I should if, You know, what, what was your attitude looking at these American advisors that would come in for a year or less at a time and rotate in, rotate out, and and see if they've got all the answers for you, telling you what to do and how to how to how to fight a war.
0: Yeah. Well, that's I think one of the complaints or about that rotational system is guys come in. By the time they feel comfortable with what they're doing, it's almost time for them to leave again. And they, I know they did that a lot with company and battalion leadership, Mm -hmm. where a leader would come in and serve three, four, maybe five months as a battalion commander, as a company commander, and then they'd rotate them out. Yep. Just when you start to get comfortable with what's going on, you're out of there, and then soon after that, you're going back to the States. Yep. Whereas World War II, you were gonna deploy until we won. (laughs) Which is definitely a different way to do it. Now, that being said, it's, It's at least a little bit nice when you go to maybe run some combat operations in the morning. And then that afternoon you go home and have dinner with your wife. Right. (laughs) And that's exactly what happened with uh, with with May. He ended up he he met this this woman. um, Her name was Sen. And, you know, like he starts having a relationship. But when he goes to work in the morning, he's going into combat. So that's a little different, too.
1: Yeah, yeah, it it is. And as I mentioned in the book, the Vietnamese Airborne was the strategic reserve for Vietnam forces, controlled by the general staff. Uh, Their locations were all around Saigon uh, with one of the units down at Vung Tau, which was not that far from Saigon. Uh, So when they weren't deployed off on an operation, yeah, May was going home every night and, and being with his family. Uh, And then they'd usually deploy the air, but the airborne would get deployed if there was some horrible situation They'd go up and and save the day uh, Spend usually just a few days or at the most couple two or three weeks and then back to back to Saigon back with his family
0: You know You've got a section in the end of the book that you talk about where this these airborne units these Vietnamese Airborne units The history of them where they came from, right? Can you talk us through that really quick because it's pretty interesting the way they they were originally formed and where they're rooted
1: Yeah, I I wanted to include that in the book because, again, I I was really impressed when I did my research and found out the courage and and valor of the Vietnamese Airborne consistently throughout their history. Um, Yeah, without giving you, – you're talking to a Ph.D. historian here, so I don't want to go off on an hour-and-a-half lecture on the Vietnamese Airborne. But uh, the concise version is it all began with the French. Uh, Vietnam was a colony of France's uh, since the late 1800s. Uh, during World War II, uh, the Japanese uh, invaded and, and took over uh, Vietnam. Uh, we, the Americans, worked with the Vietnamese insurgents fighting against the Japanese during the war. There's a whole another story there that I won't get into. But at any rate, after the war, uh, the French came back trying to reestablish their colony in Vietnam. Uh, The Vietnamese, uh, a portion of the Vietnamese under Ho Chi Minh uh, had a a militant arm called the Viet Minh, and they very much saw themselves as an independent country and weren't going to stand for the French coming in to to take them over. Uh, So we have a conflict between the French and the Viet Minh after the war. Uh, The French had uh, Vietnamese that didn't want anything to do with the Communists. That ends up becoming South Vietnam, Uh, but as the French tried to reassert themselves uh, looking to the... uh, I want to say friendly Vietnamese, but those who are aligned with the French, uh, they, the French uh, had airborne units that came to Vietnam. They saw some advantage to getting Vietnamese military to be part of that airborne, and that's where the whole thing started. They started training indigenous Vietnamese to become (coughs) paratroopers. Uh, Those Vietnamese were trained and and molded on the French model. Uh, In time, there were Vietnamese airborne companies that would fight as a part of French battalions uh, in time, by the time we get to the Dien Bien Phu battle, which is going to be the undoing of the French in Vietnam and in, in Indochina in 1954, there are Vietnamese airborne battalions by that time fighting. So that was the start of the Vietnamese airborne. It started on the French model. Uh, there, and so they still, to the, uh, to the U.S. involvement in the war, tracked their origins to the, to the French uh, and, uh, and kept that same proud model. The Red Berets that they wore. Uh, came from the front
0: and that's what that's what may ends up volunteering for you know after he spent some time in the the infantry he he then volunteers for this elite vietnamese airborne division and and you've got a bunch of uh good combat stories in there what did did you spend a lot of time talking to may retracing this stuff huh
1: I Yeah, uh, over a period of four years, I talked to May. I don't know, I should look at my notes. I've got about 10 interviews with May. I've probably got 18 interviews with Duffy, uh, half half a dozen interviews with, with High, who we we'll, might talk about in, in a little bit. But he ended up being the operations officer of the 11th Battalion. May is the executive officer. Uh, Colonel Bao is the commander. He, he gets killed in, in the battle. So I spent a lot of time talking to, to those guys, principally May, High, and Duffy, uh, at one time, I even uh, uh, flew down to San Jose, went to Santa Cruz where Duffy lives, and May and High came down. and We spent an entire day sitting around Duffy's dining room table. I had blown up some maps. I forget. I think I had one to, uh, I don't know, 25,000 or something that I blew up into huge maps we laid on the table. We went over that battle in great detail. So, yes, I've spent a lot of time with all of those guys to get this right.
0: Next time you do that, can you tell me so I can come and watch, and maybe even bring Echo so he can press record. Oh gosh, that's phenomenal! I know we talked about maybe getting some of these guys on in the future. That'd be awesome. Um, he 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 ends up getting married. Did you record? Did you record these interactions that you had before you go? I,
1: I did. Well, I re- every single interview I did on the phone, I recorded, and I have those recordings. And that entire session we spent that day, I recorded the whole day. Yes. <laughs>
0: Oh, there's going to be some requests for that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't. I think when I did those recordings, it was with their understanding that we were doing those in confidence, and that that would not be released to the world.
0: <laughs> uh, um, he, so he gets married to Sen, the, this woman that he had met. Yes. He, he is enjoying life. He's, um, he's got his comrades. You've got, you've got a section in there. They drink this. This Martel Cognac, yep. which is uh, very superior old pale. that's what's written on the bottle VSOP:
1: Yeah VSOP VSOP
0: mm-hmm. is on the bottle and and the paratroopers they say that it doesn't stand for very superior old pale. it stands for very sexy old paratroopers: That's a fact. <laughs> so there's some good uh, some good camaraderie with these guys yep and and again, it's just wild to think that these guys are working, they're living at home, they're with their family, and then they go on deployment for two or three weeks and do heroic stuff and then go back and get back with their family. It's a whole, it's a whole different kind of war fighting than, I, I mean, well, yeah, I guess you could say the Civil War, we did that in America, but I mean, other than that, we've been fighting in other countries. Yeah. We haven't had that just go home to your family at the end of a day of combat.
1: Well, most Vietnamese units didn't. This was uh, the luxury of the uh, airborne, but, they, you know, they did more risk than anybody else. And you, you mentioned them getting married. They got married uh, during the uh, Tet or just at the end of the Tet Offensive, and May had gotten deployed up to Way uh, to City during the, uh, during the Tet Offensive and fought in his—I think he was commanding a company then— uh, they got down to 25% combat strength, were no longer combat effective, so got sent back to Saigon to re-outfit and refit and get deck- ready for the next deployment. And it was on that break, you know, after losing so much of your of your unit and, and all those casualties, uh, Sen and May decided, hey, if we, we can't wait any longer. We need to get married. So that's when they got married.
0: Uh, yeah, you've got a bunch of those details in here. Obviously, we're not reading the whole book. Go buy the book and and get the rest of that story. Um, l- let's look at John Duffy. Okay. The, the other major character here. I'm going to go to the book <laughs> cause I like this intro. <laughs> there is no question where John Duffy is from. He was born in Manhattan, moved to Queens at a young age and then Brooklyn. He never lost his accent or the peppering of profanities. He picked up in the public schools and on the streets of the city. World war II raged during his early years. He was seven years old when it ended. He remembered it well. And then you kind of, you go through some of these, th- this is, so much of this is just like a, a should be a movie. This whole section about him growing up in in and around the boroughs in New York. You know, he's like a smart kid, but he thinks school is boring. He's really good at math, but he's skipping school the whole nine yards, cutting class. Uh just a rebellious kid. Sounds familiar actually in some <laughs> forms. Uh and then Uh, Going back to the book when he was 16 a neighbor a paratrooper in the 187th airborne regimental combat team Visited the family he just returned from the Korean War the war had ended some months earlier But the soldier was just now being sent home He stood in the family's living room his uniform sharp his pants tucked into his tall shined leather boots John was impressed The stories of war impressed him. The immaculate uniform with its badges and medals impressed him. But the shiny boots impressed John the most. The boots that only paratroopers could wear with their Class A service uniform. Those highly polished brown jump boots caught his eye and his imagination. In that instant, John was hooked. Yes, paratrooper, that's what I want to be. As soon as he turned 17, he got his parents' permission to enlist. He entered the Army as a private two days after his birthday before finishing his junior year of high school. Get some. He breezed through basic and infantry training. Airborne school at Fort Campbell, Kentucky proved more of a challenge. John endured the verbal abuse and the physical pain, gutting it out until he earned his coveted jump wings at 17 and a half. The Army assigned him immediately to the 11th Airborne Division in Germany. So, that's that's, cool. that's john duffy <laughs> that's that's a pretty cool way to kick things off but but what's interesting and you go into this in the book uh like his first tour is not that big of a deal it's in between the korean war and the vietnam war there's not a lot going on he does his tour he decides he's going to get out he comes home he, he tries a couple of different things one of them was dan- what a dancing instructor
1: he, he did not know anything about dancing. He was home. He was out of the Army. He was driving around. There's all kinds of stories of what he was doing driving around. And he, he passes this Arthur Murray Dance Studio, and it says dance instructor wanted, I think, in the window hiring. And so he walks in and applies for the job and t- has to scamp around and learn, learn how to dance so he can be a dance instructor. But he turned into a very good dance in, instructor. And, uh, yeah, he still maintains some of that suave, uh, suave nature. If I can tell a little side story. Uh, we had many years ago in San Diego a Vietnam helicopter pilots reunion. I forget how it was a long, long time ago. John Duffy showed up just because he was in town visiting his brother and he heard about the reunion, and and he showed up, and and that's the first time I ever met him face-to-face and saw him. Uh, I had my young daughter with me. I think she was, I don't know, 13 years old, if if that, and and my wife. Uh, One of the events for the reunion was a a, a social thing on the Midway up on the deck, and they had a band up there with dancing. So he gets my young daughter and starts dancing with her on the deck of the the Midway, uh, hearkening back to his Arthur Murray (laughs) dance instructor, and it was beautiful, and she loved it. Okay, fast forward, and I don't want to get too far forward because we'll come to this, I'm sure, but we were at the White House uh, just a week ago, and uh, and he had just gotten his medal uh, pinned around his neck and... We were in a social in the, I don't know, with the ceremonies in the East Room, one of the other rooms there. And he got Chelsea and twirled her around like dancing moves up there. So it was really, really nice and harkened back to that old-time memory, which is just a little further detail on his dance prowess that he got by stepping into an Arthur Murray studio, knowing nothing about dancing and saying, I'd like that job, and there he goes. What what
0: year was the reunion here in San Diego?
1: Oh, I'd have to look. I don't know. It was. I mean, if your daughter was 13. Then it was like Thirteen years. She's twenty-seven now. So uh, yeah. fourteen years ago. And,
0: um, and he still got the moves. He still had the moves, <laughs> and
1: he still has his Brooklyn accent to this day. <laughs> uh,
0: well, following his story, where it goes from there, um, after his dance, he, I guess he didn't love it too much because he decided he was going to go make his fortune as a gambler.
1: Yeah. Now in, he played cards as a kid. That's earlier in the book, too. So right. he really thought he had the, the, the stuff he needed to be a winner at card games in Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah go ahead. So he, so
0: he packs up his car and goes to Vegas to go and, you know, I mean, clearly just make a fortune in Vegas. Yep. You know, this is a pretty common idea. Right? <laughs> you know, these people are giving away money out there. Yeah. Well, uh, what, two or three months into it, he's completely broke, and he has to sell his car. He doesn't even have his car (laughs) anymore. He's on foot. (laughs) Next stop, Army recruiter. (laughs) So he goes back into the Army, um, and when he goes back in the Army still, you know, there's there's no war going on or anything. Um, Becomes a finance clerk, gets sent to Munich, uh, meets a German woman, you you know, and, and then he got orders to... 10th special forces group and he's assigned to an a-team now when he did that i, I tried to figure out did, was was there any school that he was required to go to or how did that work
1: no there was you know like today to get into special forces and certainly navy seals i mean you got to go yeah you got to pass buds for this SEALs, right. and and, uh, and army special forces you have to go through a school and, and a lot of guys get weeded out no then he he was parachute qualified uh, and had some jumps. His first tour in Europe was with the Airborne Division. So he's in Munich, uh, as I remember, doing some uh, cl- clerical nothing job, wanted to get out of there. And so he volunteered to go down to Bad Tolz uh, with the uh, Special Forces down there. And he had before he could wear a beret, he had to go through qualification in a whole bunch of just local schools. Uh, but it was nothing like mm-hmm. what they have today and, and once he uh gained certain qualifications and he was able to get uh, get his badge and wear, wear his beret
0: yeah that's that was pretty awesome to read through that um, so he's he becomes a demolition guy at uh, at at an a team he gets recommended for o c s and then he he breaks his arm three what is it two three times three times <laughs> same arm yep. keeps breaking his arm um eventually he he heals up his arm he goes to o c s he graduates september eleventh nineteen sixty three he's now got two kids once he graduates from o c s um he gets assigned to the eight hundred and first military intelligence detachment in fort bragg he's not loving this no um, <laughs> and and this is back when if you were in special forces or in like any special operations, you that wasn't a good career move. You know, it's not like now where it can be very good for your career if you're in the Army or if you're in the Navy, if you're in special operations. It can be, back in these days, it, it was not good for your career. And the officers that were looking out for you would actually say, hey, you don't want to keep doing this special operations stuff. That's not that's not going to get you anywhere. Um, so they give him this other assignment. He can't stand it. Right. Uh, and eventually he's he wants to go to Vietnam and he gets orders back to special forces and he gets assigned to fifth special forces in Vietnam. He sent to Khe San, and then he's sent to, uh, to what is it? Lang Long, Vey? long, long Bay, Long Bay gets sent to Long Bay where he's going to be working with the Montagnards, the, the, the brew tribesmen.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is where he gets his first combat. So he's actually been in the army for a long time. Yes. And he, But this is where he gets his first combat, and since we, we covered May's first combat, let's jump, on, let's jump on Duffy's first combat, going back to the book. The choppers hovered a few feet above the ground. The Brew fighters and their special forces advisors jumped off. The helicopters climbed quickly, departing to the east. The rotor noise faded. All stood in silence. Duffy stayed close to the Brew commander. They moved off the landing zone and set out. They scoured the immediate area before beginning a three-day sweep northward back to their camp at Lang Vey. They had no encounters the first day, but the next morning they walked into a Viet Cong ambush. Rat-a-tat-tat and enemy fire. The brew militia leaders shouted orders. The commander turned to Duffy, pointing to his left front. VC, 10 o'clock, maybe platoon, maybe more. The Indige force spread out and returned fire. The noise of the firefight intensified. Bullets zipped past John. Men dropped, wounded, others fell dead. A hand grenade landed nearby, shrapnel tearing into Duffy's left knee, a wound that would reward him his first purple heart. Another grenade rolled between his feet. He held his breath. Oh Christ, I'm dead. It didn't detonate. His heart pounded. He took a moment to bandage his wounded knee, then a calm settled over him. He began to methodically appraise the situation to try and make sense of what the enemy was doing, to consider the tactics of his fighters to assess the project of the progress of the battle. He turned to the brew commander and firmly directed, "Counterattack! Counterattack now!" In the face of the brew advance, the Viet Cong withdrew, dragging their wounded with them. Duffy's voice followed the blood Duffy's force followed the blood trail for a while but their foe had escaped. They resumed the sweep northward, no further enemy contact. John Duffy had seen his first combat. He'd reacted as he hoped he would, done what he was trained to do, kept his wits about him. He reflected, scary, but better than expected. This is my destiny. So there's his first combat situation that he goes into gets wounded gets hit with a grenade <laughs> has a grenade dud land between his legs which is a nightmare
1: <laughs> and he knows that he is a lucky man that that was his first purple heart he has eight purple hearts oh. Go all the way up through uh, through firebase charlie
0: yeah <sighs> um this was this was another um situation that you talk about in the book that definitely needs to be covered here it says on March 2nd 1967 a clear day two silver jets screamed down route 9 flying low from the east many in the special forces camp waved the jets popped up turned and dropped bombs on Lang Vey village with some hitting the special forces camp radio calls went out in vain no contact with the jets They returned for another pass This time with 20 millimeter cannons blazing The camp opened fire Thinking the jets are hostile They weren't, they were American They'd made a mistake It was possibly the worst friendly fire incident of the war Killing 112 brew villagers And wounding 213 Duffy's green berets entered the village The devastation appalled them they dashed through frame flames and still exploding ordnance to pull injured families from burning structures. Risking his life time and time again, Duffy rescued survivors. Many still hid in underground bunkers. John and his men crawled into several, begging the occupants to leave. Some did, others didn't. They were so terrorized that they were frozen in place. John went for the village chief. When they returned to the first bunker, it was too late everyone had died the flames and smoke had made the air unbreathable the Americans treated the wounded while the villagers retrieved their dead team members soon used up most of their medical supplies when proper sutures ran out they turned to safety pins the team helped buried the dead and arranged for medical evacuation of the wounded Duffy requested help through channels to make amends as much as that might be possible Emergency flights brought food, medicine, clothing and building materials. US Navy Seabees construction engineers showed up with a backhoe. Together the tribesmen Green Berets and Seabees built a new Lang v- Langve village a short distance from the old one. The brood chief demanded the old village site be abandoned. His claim he claimed his people saw it as infested with evil spirits because of the terrible fate that had befallen it. Duffy leveraged circumstances to also have an airstrip built adjacent to the special forces camp. John had commanded A-101 at Lang Vey for a little over three months when he received orders to be the executive officer for A-113, the much larger special forces mobile strike force for all of I-Corps, the northernmost tactical region of South Vietnam. They called it Mike Force, Mike being short in term for mobile strike Whew. so that was a horrible scenario
1: it was and that remains a nightmare in john's mind to this day uh he did what he could do but yeah it was the the uh, jets and I, I honestly don't remember now if they were air force navy or marine but the uh, the jets thought that that was an enemy uh village and i think they thought it was just across the laotian border but it wasn't it was long bay camp uh and uh yeah it was uh, it was terrible Uh, John was the commander of that Special Forces Detachment, A-101. Long Vey uh, would later get, and you may get into one of them, but got overrun twice. Uh, The second time uh, was, uh, gosh, when, 1967, I think. Uh, And there was a book written about that called Night of the Silver Stars. Uh, And so many of those guys got killed, uh, captured, a few were rescued. Uh, I ended up in prison camp with... Two, three guys, I think, from from the Long Bay camp, that were captured that second time. It was it was overrun.
0: Um, <clears throat> you 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 go into some of the stuff in the book um, w- w- of what took place during the rest of that deployment, a- and then his tour of duty ends. That first tour of duty ends January seventeenth, nineteen sixty eight, just before the nineteen sixty eight Tet Offensive. Right. Um, he gets home. He you know like oftentimes happens. He gets home. His his family, uh, his family reunion, getting back together with his family wasn't wasn't exactly what it should have been. Ends up getting divorced. Um, and he you know is ready to go back to Vietnam. And he he ends up going back to Vietnam. He gets assigned to the Phoenix program. Yes. And we've had uh people from the Phoenix program on on this podcast before. The Phoenix program was essentially an assassination program to kill senior Viet Cong leadership and just assassinate them. It didn't seem like John liked that idea very much.
1: He did not like it at all. Uh he, he claimed two things. One, he said his Vietnamese language capability wasn't good enough. <laughs> But uh, that was just an excuse. I think he uh, he didn't want anything to do with uh, with Phoenix. He set his sights other places.
0: And so he he pretty much just had had he had heard about SOG at this point.
1: Yeah, he he had uh, heard about SOG and largely I mean he commanded A one hundred and one so special special forces experience uh, and and SOG missions going uh, into Laos from from Vietnam. He was aware of it. Uh, so he just got grabbed his records and, and headed to uh, SOG headquarters in, in Saigon to make his case. Uh,
0: shows up there, shows up at the SOG headquarters, and uh, and ex- SOG
1: I might say is, is uh, they, they they the the special operations were running SOG thought they they had a. a, a Little covert deal here because SOG stood for, and the sign on the street out in front of the building was Studies and Observations Group. It was kind of an innocuous means nothing deal, and who would know and who would care what went on there. Uh, But in short order, their exploits became, excuse me, somewhat known. At least that they were doing sneaky, strange stuff, uh, probably across the border. So most everybody, when they'd hear SOG, would think of just Special Operations Group. That's what it was. So their Studies and Observations uh, Group didn't uh, didn't carry it too well. But yeah, so John found his way to their headquarters building, which was just a a building on a street in Saigon. It was not a on a military base at all. And uh, yeah, went in to make his case that he didn't want to have anything to do with Phoenix and could they help him.
0: Uh, Colonel Eiler, who's one of the SOG commanders, um, he says, sat down behind his desk and read through John's military records. They chatted for a while. The colonel made a phone call. He leaned back in his chair and said, you're no longer assigned to the Phoenix program. You're now a member of SOG. Welcome aboard. I want you to cut off all the insignia from your uniforms and report back here at 0700 tomorrow morning with all your stuff. Duffy responded with a loud yes, sir. Uh, he gets an in brief. We run MACV SOG missions onto the trail, same as the launch sites in South Vietnam, but we are weather backup. When things are too skosh on that side, we insert and recover teams from here. SOG teams out of Vietnam are normally three US and eight to 10 indigenous. Most of that we work with are two US and four indige because the helicopter limitations. John asked, what exactly do we do? Mostly reconnaissance behind enemy lines, watching the trail, gathering intel, and sometimes directing airstrikes on enemy convoys or fuel and supply depots. They'll tap into communications lines when they find them. They also conduct ground raids to destroy supplies and equipment. They'll mine roads on occasion and snatch prisoners too. He looked right at John, all highly classified. We don't exist. We're not here. His expression tightened. It's dicey. We've lost a number of teams. He turned and motioned to John, Let's go meet the commander and get you settled in. Major Bill Shelton, the MLT 3 commander, made Captain Duffy his executive officer overseeing operations and intelligence activities. At the same time, Duffy functioned as a launch officer responsible for coordinating individual SOG team missions. He also routinely flew in the OV 10 Broncos as a backseat SOG observer. The front seat U.S. Air Force pilots were all qualified for forward air controllers or fax the aircraft provided an immediate available overhead capability to synchronize support in real time as te- as a team conducted its assigned mission deep in enemy held territory so yeah we've had a quite a few sog guys on here so he's up basically flying covey right
1: yeah, they called the uh, the guys that flew in the aircraft Covey Riders. Uh, they were SOG-qualified guys, special forces guys, could really appreciate and relate to the mission. And uh, from the air, they would coordinate all support. Uh, as that said, the front seat Air Force pilot of the OV-10 was uh, qualified as a FAC, forward air controller. Uh, but in time, the backseat Covey Riders could uh, do as much adjustment of, of uh, air as, as that front seat. I might comment, we're, there there was a time a few years ago where I couldn't have put those sentences in that right. book. It was still sensitive, highly classified information. Uh, thanks goes to another <clears throat> former SOG guy who wrote uh, some books. And the first book, I think, that really got this information out in the open, his name is John Plaster. And he wrote a book called SOG, America's Secret Commandos. Uh, and, and he coordinated and, and cleared to get that information out. But until then, even the involvement I had uh, in, in my mission before I was shot down and captured supporting SOG, I couldn't. People say, what would you do in the Great Vietnam War? I said, well, flew <laughs> helicopters and gunships, and that's about all I can I can talk about. So John Plaster got this all out in the open so we could uh, give that level of detail of what uh, what John Duffy was, was doing. Uh, and I, I don't know if we mentioned Mobile Launch Team 3 was out of <laughs> non Thailand. Uh, so this part of SOG was on the west side of Laos. Most of their operations ran from forward operating bases or FOBs inside of Vietnam. There were three of them that would launch the teams into Laos and recover in, uh, f- back into Vietnam. But if the weather was skoshed, then all the weight went on uh, mobile launch team 3 and non to come in from the Thailand side. <sighs>
0: Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, I I think it was a 20 year waiting period that they had on the SOG mission. So nothing was said about it until like 1995 or 1994 before anyone even broached the subject. Right. You know, we've had John Stryker Meyer on here a few times. I know he wrote a couple articles early for like Soldier of Fortune magazine or something and started, you know, getting the word out about the insane uh, and heroic operations that the guys at SOG did. Yeah, just crazy.
1: So, John Duffy was flying Covey Rider on that second tour of duty, in addition to being the launch officer and all the other admin responsibilities in the unit. But he spent a lot of time in OB 10s out over the trail, uh, coordinating those guys, or supporting those guys on the ground.
0: Yeah, and he clearly, which we'll see, I mean, he got extremely good at understanding how to utilize air support. Yep. No doubt about it. Uh, He received five air medals for valor during the missions he flew there. Following a year of challenging and rewarding service, his second combat tour ended. He got orders back to the United States. So that ends John Duffy's tour. Meanwhile, uh, May, Lavon May, is also continuing to get more and more combat experience, especially now we're after Tet of 1968, uh, he fought in Quezon, he fought in the Ashaw Valley, he was in the field fighting when he got radio traffic that he was uh, <laughs> that he had a son. Yep. Uh, he was part of Lam Son Seven Nineteen, the largest helicopter assault of the war, which we covered on podcast uh, two ninety four with a Huey pilot, Jay Tate, and what what Van May did on that he was held on held in reserve so he, there was a bunch of a bunch of vietnamese troops that went in, in into cambodia and he was in reserve his but, unit was in reserve so yeah, they didn't go in,
1: in Into laos uh, oh, off, sir. uh no, i'm side 719. and yeah he was part of the second uh, brigade and they were supposed to be the final and they were going to do an airborne or air mobile assault at the town of chapone which was the end of this of this attack into uh, into laos But for some reason, his mission got changed, and he never did that. Uh, I think the president of of Vietnam got a little bit cold feet and decided to withdraw earlier than anticipated. Of course, that withdrawal turned into a rout. Uh, They had some ground forces in there, some rangers trying to hold uh, some outposts on on either side of the advance, and that turned into a mess. Uh, But, yeah, May's unit never got deployed across the border on Lamsan 719, was held in reserve. Uh, The only action they saw was when the Vietnamese forces were coming back across the border, they facilitated that crossing.
0: And meanwhile, while that's happening, John Duffy, he wants to get back to Vietnam, of course, again. Uh, He he can't get orders. He's trying to get orders, and finally he volunteers to go back to SOG. Right. And he's thinking, hey, you know what? Great, I'll go back to SOG. I'll get some more combat experience. Well, when he gets back to SOG, he gets told you're too senior for anything in the field, right? So you're basically going to be riding a desk. He doesn't like that. He didn't like being in a combat zone with no combat. is <laughs> how you put it in the book, right? Uh, he spends four months there at SOG headquarters, and then he asks to get reassigned to MacV's Team 162, which was a team that worked directly with the Vietnamese airborne units. And the colonel that's he's asking to go and get this transfer from s- tells him you'll you'll be killed you you ignorant son of a bitch <laughs> right exactly and Duffy replies so be it.
1: <laughs> John Duffy wanted to get back into combat badly.
0: <laughs> um, he drives to Red Hat Hill. What's the deal with Red Hat Hill?
1: Red Hat Hill is a. ARVN, Army of the Republic of Vietnam Airborne Base uh, on the edge of Saigon, uh, north, northeast of, of the downtown city of Saigon. And that was a, uh, it was the base for the 11th Airborne Battalion uh, and a small advisory group. Uh, and, uh, and they trained there. Uh, Their barracks were there and it was from there that they would deploy to their combat operations And again close enough May's family was in Saigon So it was close enough that he could uh, again drive home every night and uh, and spend time at home and then go back to work in the morning
0: He gets up there where he's going to become an advisor and the battalion commander is having a weekly meeting And I'm going to go to the book for when he shows up Uh, This weekly meeting is happening As business wrapped up, the six foot three strapping American strode through the door, his look intense, his movement deliberate. He wore a brand new camouflage patterned airborne uniform and the red Vietnamese beret. He scanned the room and spotted the ranking officer, Colonel Bao. He walked over to him, the two spoke. Bao looked over before turning to the group. This is our new senior advisor, Major John Duffy. He is an American special forces officer. All eyes were on John. After a somewhat awkward pause, Bao commented, or Bao continued, why don't you tell us about yourself, Major Duffy? John briefly recounted his previous tours in Vietnam, highlighting his combat experience. On concluding, he said, I'm very glad to be here. His sincerity impressed everyone. They all greeted him individually and in small groups. May just stared for a time. He was taken with the fact that John, was a special, that John was special forces. He knew their work along the border and had heard stories of their covert operations. He'd seen the John Wayne movie at the Saigon Theater. The soundtrack tune, Barry Sadler's Ballad of the Green Berets, played in his head. Finally, he stepped forward. In his very best English, he said, Hello, I'm Major May, the XL. John looked at him, smiled, and said in, in his best Vietnamese, I'm Major John Duffy. I look forward to working with you. May smiled broadly. He wanted to learn all he could from this American. As senior advisor, protocol dictated that John would work principally with the commander, Lieutenant Colonel Bao. Normally, his contact with the executive officer, May, would be minimal. The XO was to pair with an assistant advisor. But from the outset, this was no normal relationship. There was no assistant advisor. John was it. Personnel shortages dictated filling the three-man team with only one person. From the outset, the strapping American intrigued May, and John Duffy saw something in May that immediately impressed him. Thereafter, May took every opportunity to talk to John during breaks in training and after unit meetings. May drew from John's Green Beret experience while John learned all he could about Arvin procedures and, most importantly, getting a better understanding of Vietnamese culture. Pretty cool introduction, those guys. They kind of hit it off out of the gate.
1: Yep, right, immediately.
0: Uh, Not long after that, they start operating. They start doing missions. Um, Going to the book here. At dawn on October 5th, 1971, the North Vietnamese attacked in earnest, a force of over a thousand soldiers hit the battalion hard. Enemy mortars and rockets pounded them. John woke with a start. Officers and sergeants shouted command, bringing a disciplined response to the madness around them. John made his way to Bow. High was already there. Well, who's High? The operations officer. Hai is the
1: operations officer. The battalion S three.
0: So Bow is the commander. High is the operations officer. May ran up in an instant. Bow cal- calmly passed orders through the radio operator. Seeing his team assembled, he said, ground attack come for sure. Hi, get us VNAF, Vietnamese Air Force.
1: VNAF, yeah, A1 Sky Raiders.
0: Put artillery all around perimeter. May, go to companies, coordinate counterattack. Duffy, how about airstrikes? Quick and real close. Bao went on in Vietnamese for a moment, providing more detail to his operations officer and XO. The sound of bugles and whistles and screams filled the air. Small arms fire intensified. The ground attack had had begun. Go. Bao commanded. They each set about their tasks. John moved a short distance away to a protected spot and got on his radio, attempting to contact American forward Air Controller who was airborne in a small propeller-driven spotter plane. Any FAC, any FAC, this is Dusty Cyanide, advisor with Vietnamese Airborne Battalion, under attack, need air badly. Any FAC, any FAC. Station calling for FAC, this is Chico12. 12. Roger12, 12, this is Dusty Cyanide, been receiving heavy incoming... Ground attack underway, multiple enemy battalions holding as best we can but need air. Understood Dusty, we'll have fighters for you shortly. What are the friendly locations and where are the enemy targets? John passed the details for the strike to the forward air controller. Bao approached. As they discussed options for the battle, a rocket blast hit them with the full fury of a shrapnel. Fragments peppered the left side of John's face and tore into Bao's right eye. It looked bad, blackened and bloody. They wiped their wounds and continued the fight. Bao headed toward the sound of the most intense fighting. Duffy looked around and saw several critically wounded nearby. Dismissing his own injuries, he left his protected position, exposing himself to enemy fire so he could render first aid. He saw the battalion surgeon, Dr. Liu. Is that right, Liu? Dr. Liu. Dr. Liu doing the same. His uniform torn and dirty. His body bloodied from his own wounds. Once the jet fighters arrived, John moved about wherever necessary to best direct airstrikes, remaining calm and focused, oblivious to the bullets flying around him. That day, John Duffy put in more than forty flights of fighter aircraft. Those airstrikes, on top of the courageous fighting of the paratroopers, saved the battalion from being overrun. May led a successful counterattack with one with one fourteen company in the lead. In the midst of the fray, Duffy found time to supervise cutting a landing zone so that VNAF medevac helicopters could get in to pick up the wounded. The NVA killed. 10 11th Battalion paratroopers and wounded 74. When it was all over, Duffy, Bao, May, and High stood facing each other, their uniforms soiled with dirt and blood, their faces smudged with filth, their eyes red from exhaustion. Bao studied his team, smiled, and nodded in appreciation. May looked at the intensity on John Duffy's face. John returned his glance, softened his expression, and gave his friend a knowing wink. These guys are in it.
1: Yeah, that was the end of one hellacious battle for those guys. And, uh, you know, Bao's eye injury, he lost his, his eye uh, in that uh, in that battle. Would not be medevaced, continued to fight with those guys. Uh, yeah, it was quite something.
0: Yeah, and, uh, look, I apologize. I kind of jumped towards the end of that battle. There's a whole scene running up to that. So well, would, we, you we, can't want re- we can't of read details. the whole book. Exactly. <laughs> when you want the rest of those details, get the book. Uh, they, you know, you you go over more operations. You detail them. The bonds between these guys strengthen. They they really become uh, real true comrades. And then I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. The 11th Airborne Battalion headed to Kontum on March 31st, 1972. Conditions there grew more intense each day. For months, intelligence reports had warned of North Vietnamese preparations for a major attack. Two Cobra gunships from the U.S. Army's 361st Aerial Weapons Company spotted enemy tanks in late January. Subsequent sightings by other American helicopters and the Vietnamese Air Force followed. Arvin ground patrols encountered even larger NVA units as the weeks progressed. Prisoners and documents seized in February confirmed the presence of 10 to 20,000 NVA soldiers along with tanks, artillery, and large numbers of anti-aircraft weapons all poised in the tri-border area of western Khantoum province.
1: Something bad (laughs) is about to happen. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, this is going to turn into or turn out to be the 1972 Easter offensive. This is March 31st of, 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 uh, of what year, 1972. Uh, and nobody had a clue. I mean, we knew that the enemy was up to something. And in, in our support of the SOG guys out there, they had seen stuff going on. Uh, but it is all about to come to a, uh, a crescendo here in the, uh, in the Central Highlands. As well as, uh, well, the, the Easter offensive began, and I think we'll get to that with an invasion across the demilitarized zone in the north into I-Corps, the northern area of South Vietnam, uh, out of Cambodia towards Saigon, trying to, to thrust to Saigon, and then out of Laos and, and Cambodia into Kontum Province into the Central Highlands, and we're going to soon find ourselves right in the middle of the, uh, of the largest enemy offensive of the war. While Americans were still there now most well most people don't know anything about the Vietnam War anyway But the most who know something about the Vietnam War will tell you that the largest offensive was Tet of 68 Uh, That certainly gets the most notoriety Uh, In the spring of 1972 most American ground forces were gone We were withdrawing from the war so the Easter offensive doesn't get quite the notoriety But it was a significantly larger enemy operation than, than the Tet offensive of 68 and this marked a watershed change the war was no longer a guerrilla war with uh, the easter offensive of 72 it was a conventional war north vietnam sent every division they had save one that they kept in the north every other division came south and it was uh, regular regular infantry uh, armor tanks uh, air defense all over the place uh, and uh, it was it was something
0: Wh- What did this seem like from your perspective at the time on the ground? You're, how old are you at this point? 25, something like this? Uh,
1: 20, yeah, by the Easter Offensive, I was 26. I went to Vietnam on my second tour at 25, had a birthday (laughs) in in late December, so I was uh, a young 26-year-old Army captain.
0: So obviously now, you know, you look back and you see this big strategic picture. What did it look like? For you on the ground when you're 26 years old and you're a freaking helicopter gunslinger.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, we were just flying missions, you know, and the missions up until then were supporting the MACV SOG operations, and and those were just full of excitement too because uh, with the enemy buildup that we were just beginning to have an appreciation for. Those teams most often—I don't want to overstate it—but I think I can say most often, uh, after we'd put them in, their extractions were a tacky, tactical emergency, uh, because they had made contact with the enemy and the enemy had discovered them and, and was in hot pursuit. And they were very exciting extractions with us firing Cobra weapons very, very close uh, for their extraction and, and even their missions in, inside of South Vietnam now, which, as I said earlier, was primarily what they were, what they were doing. Uh, still, the enemy was in growing strength, so every one of their missions was was pretty dicey. Um, yeah, so what was it? I don't know what it's for a twenty six year old. I mean, you've been there too as a young <laughs> young guy off in combat. Um, yeah, you're getting shot at. Aircraft are taking hits. Uh, it's it's exciting for the guys on the ground trying to get them out of there. Uh, there's some. There's some fear on the missions. I mean, you'd be crazy if you're not afraid when you're in the middle of combat, but you're doing what you're trained to do, so you focus on that and and you get through it. And for aviators, luckily at the end of the day, we get to fly back to the air base and uh, get out of our helicopter and go to our little officer's club and start throwing throwing down some drinks to get ready to do the same thing the next day. We didn't really appreciate what this buildup signified. We were seeing more action, we were seeing more enemy activity, and, and, and so we shifted from support for the MACV SOG guys out of FOB 2 uh, to just kind of a general fire brigade in the Central Highlands. And, and so it was turning into every day we'd launch in the morning really not knowing exactly what was happening, but we get calls for support and we go provide uh, gun support, rearm, refuel, go back out and spend the days doing that. Um, I guess there was some level of worry even for a 26-year-old that started to mount uh, because then we started having aircraft shot down. We had an OH-58 shot down, and the pilot was missing in action, assumed captured. And so there was all that to be concerned about. Uh, but that comes back to the attitude that young people have. Uh, I realized that things were happening, that things were building up, that people were getting hurt and aircraft were getting going down but i never for a minute thought that any of that would happen to me because there's something in our mind and our and our psyche particularly for combat guys that uh, hey the, you know stuff, bad stuff happens but it's happening to someone else it's uh, it's not going to happen to me and and that's how you strap into the helicopter every day and go back out and do the do the same thing again
0: now now you got shot down in your first deployment i did to vietnam i did and you survived obviously and you evaded the enemy and you got picked up. Do you think that bolstered your confidence?
1: Yeah. It's, I don't know. I don't want to talk too much about my own psychology because I've had, you know, after I got back to being a prisoner, we had to have psychological evaluations and stuff and and the, the psychiatrist saying, well, you know, what are some of the things you enjoy? Well, you know, I was a forest firefighter and I enjoyed that. And I did a little college, rode some rodeo and uh, and I, I like to ride motorcycles. And, and the guy, oh, okay. Would you have a death? No, I don't have a death wish. I just. So yeah, I, I don't know. There's something about Psychological makeup of some people uh, that they do okay in in that type of situation Uh, And and, you know that would come all the way to how I've adjusted since I got back from Vietnam and I go into a lot of that in my first uh, book of uh, of the, uh, the Trials and tribulations that I faced and what today would be called PTSD But you know I got through all of that and I tell some of the ways that I did that and I think I'm semi fine today. <laughs> so, so, you know, whatever whatever mental mindset got me through those combat operations on that second tour also got me through first tour. I was shot down over the middle of Laos. I had injuries to my neck. I, I rode an ejection seat out, a, a very short parachute ride down. We were crashing through the trees by the time I punched out. So I got a partial shoot deployment and I, and I hit the ground. Uh, but as soon, and I got picked up and taken to the hospital in Thailand and was in the hospital for a while and then back to the unit. And, and as soon as I got back to the unit, I was up reporting to the flight surgeon say, Hey, I got to get back on flight status. I got to go fly. So, yeah, who knows what's there? But I, I was enthusiastic uh, to fly my missions on the first tour. And after uh, a, a break back to the States and back to Vietnam, I had to fight because the U.S. was withdrawing so rapidly. I had to fight at every level to get assigned to a unit still in combat. Um, yeah, so maybe there's a little Duffy inside of me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I wanted to get back into the fight.
0: Now, as you're seeing this massive buildup, I mean, you're seeing tanks on the ground. Right. This has got to change your viewpoint a little bit. It seems like everyone would say, oh, something massive is coming.
1: Yeah, we I, the massive wasn't there for some reason. Something's coming. Uh, I think somewhere in the back of my mind was, well, whatever it is, we'll handle it. You know, if the enemy comes out of the woods, we got B-52s and all these airstrikes, and, and we'll just annihilate them in place, similar to what was done up at Quezon in 1968 uh, when they put Quezon under siege. We just bomb, 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 and, and really caused the enemy a lot of damage. So I think that thought was there. Um, yeah, there must have been some concern because some of the attacks, the enemy attacked uh, Route 19, which was between our base at Pleiku and the coast, and they closed Route 19. We got involved in a bunch of operations down there. So we were cut off in the highlands. There was no road transport coming to our base at Camp Holloway near Pleiku. All our supplies had to come in at C-130s on the runway. Uh, engineer crews came in there to, to improve the PSP runway and make it better. Uh, there was some talk that that was done because if the situation got bad enough, they'd have to get in and extract us and get us out of there. I don't know. Somehow that just we still had our routine of daily right. go-fly combat missions and come home at night and get drunk and get up the next morning and go do it all
0: again. How long would you fly for in the day?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know, four, five, six hours. But the day was longer because we would – take off in the morning, and if we didn't have a mission right away, we'd go stand by somewhere uh, at, uh, at Docto uh, or uh, or at the FOB pad, the the, the, uh, the SOG pad. Uh, so there was a lot of downtime waiting.
0: Just waiting? Would uh, you wait in your bird?
1: Yeah, well, we'd wait next to not sitting in the bird, Got but uh, next to the bird. Sometimes we'd play a little cards, uh, but we'd be right there so mm-hmm. we could launch. Within, uh, within two minutes. That was our routine when we put the uh, SOG teams in, too. We'd put the team in. We'd <coughs> go back to usually dock-toe, and we'd just sit there and wait because if the team got in trouble, we had to be immediately available for them. Um, so, yeah, uh, on any given day, there was some downtime just sitting, waiting for lunch. Once the activity started picking up in the Easter Offensive, though, it was – a lot of flying refueling flying refueling that if you recall in my first book by the time we got there now this is going to be three weeks after the Charlie battle boy it was all day I mean I did three rotations into combat before noon it was on my third rotation into combat that I got shot down and that was before before we got to noon
0: man yeah that's uh that's wild how it how it all looks in. In, in retrospect right what this looks like now as you're looking back you think man they had all these tanks they're they're moving in there's thousands and thousands of troops massing uh
1: it looks crazy now I mean yeah, I think about it here I am a 76 year old man and oh, wow who would do that's nuts <laughs> I mean, yeah do and, something
0: and you also wonder like what what are you hearing anything from like the strategic leadership you know like hey this is going to be a big event and here's was there any kind of Adjustment to the grand strategy or anything?
1: Well, there, there was, as I found out doing re- – but, no, at the time on the ground, no, we didn't know anything about strategic leadership. We are just a bunch of young guys flying Cobras going where we were needed and shooting, <laughs> shooting up a storm.
0: All right. So as this is going on, I'm going to fast forward in the book a little bit to a brigade briefing situation. Uh, it says the, bri- the brigade staff briefed the situation. It was not good. Each delivered remarks in English, and this is the Vietnamese Airborne Brigade. Each each delivered remarks in English, followed by detailed explanation in Vietnamese to ensure full understanding by all. The presentations emphasized that enemy numbers increased daily, flowing in from sanctuaries across the border in Laos and Cambodia. The tempo of NVA operations inside South Vietnam had picked up. They shelled military op- outposts and even major installations. That included the vital airfield in Kontum City. The North Vietnamese brought large numbers of anti aircraft machine guns with them and shot at every aircraft in range. They appeared to be on the cusp of something big. Colonel Leek, Leek? Uh, Lick? Colonel Leek. Colonel Leek stood up to give his personal appraisal in English. The enemy will come from Laos on Route 512 and move east to Tan Khan. They come from Cambodia on New Road. They build along old French route that set up attack on Khantoum City both from west and north once take Khantoum they move to play coup then turn east and attack through on to coast they cut our country in half just like they do to beat French in 1954 John looked questioningly at May I'll tell you more about that later may whispered he looked squarely up he looked squarely at those who stood before him. His face firm. Situation tense. Big U.S. cargo helicopter CH-47 Chinook shoot down yesterday at Delta. Helicopter crash. Crew survive and get inside firebase. Another helicopter come for pickup crew. Cannot. Too many VC. No aircraft can get close to Delta. Too many machine gun. Finally, he gave their orders. You. The 11th Airborne Battalion, go on to Firebase Charlie, just north of Delta tomorrow. Bow, you are strongest battalion. I know you only 56% strength. You should be 836 paratroopers, officer, and enlisted. You have only 471. Still, you my strongest. I put you in most critical place. Your mission, occupy positions on old Firebase and defend it at all costs. Peter Kama turned to John, and Peter Com is the senior overall senior advisor at the brigade level. He is. He turns to John Duffy and says, that string of hilltop fire bases, it's known as Rocket Ridge. It's, it is the key to the defense of Khantoum, and therefore, all of central Vietnam. Um, after the briefing, Kama and Duffy talked outside. John asked, why do they call it rocket, rocket Rocket Ridge? Peter explained, the Americans named it Rocket Ridge years ago. The enemy used to, used to fire 122 millimeter rockets from its heights down onto the highway and villages below. The US Army built a series of fire bases to control the ridgeline, denying it to the NVA. Now the communists want it back. They need it for their invasions plan, their invasion plans. He went on, it's April Fool's Day, but this is no joke. A rocket ridge is vulnerable. Hell, the whole region is vulnerable. We're facing the better part of two NVA divisions plus reinforcements. Friendly forces are grossly outnumbered. 17 kilometers north, the South Vietnamese 22nd Division is not well regarded. Their new commander, Colonel Dat, doesn't have a good reputation. He's not an effective leader. 17 kilometers southwest. Who knows how long the Arvin Rangers can hold out against a major attack. In between is over 20 kilometers of Rocket Ridge. And I know the bad guys want it. Arvin artillery along that ridge line impedes their maneuver against Khan and will disrupt any movement south along Highway 14 toward Khantoum. The fire bases also block his direct path eastward should he choose to advance over those hills. The direction of such attack would likely go right over top of Charlie. Understood, Duffy said. Kama continued. NVA divisions pushed across the DMZ two days ago. Looks like they're planning something just as big here. Intel warns that a thrust out of Cambodia toward Saigon is possible. We're looking at an all-out invasion of the South by North Vietnam. And we've got no American troops in the highlands. We've pulled most of our units out of Vietnam. Here in two corps, there are no American ground forces left at all. They're all gone. We've got only a few U.S. Army helicopter companies and some U.S. Air Force TAC air available and the B-52s out of Guam or Thailand, Thailand when we get them. That's it. Winning the fight on the ground is now up to the Arvin. Peter's brow lowered. This brigade was a strategic reserve for the nation. It's now been committed. The 11th Airborne Battalion was our reserve within the brigade. Now you're being committed. That leaves nothing. There's nobody else. No one to come in behind you. No reinforcements. You're it. You've got to hold at Charlie and stop the NVA from crossing Rocket Ridge. They cannot take that high ground and gain access along Highway 14 straight into Contoum. It's
1: quite a responsibility.
0: (sighs) Yeah, and when you've got a a map in here that kind of lays it out, um, it's 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 sort of like a classic sort of military operation where you can see exactly this beautiful high ground the 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 low ground that it gives access to the way it sets up sort of being able to cut across vietnam and split the country in two right. control supplies and all this it, it's like a classic military critical this de- de- decisive engagement or decisive ground um Peter Kama studied John and noted, you're the lone advisor with this battalion. That's usually a team of three, two officers and an NCO. You'll need a backup in case you get wounded. Only an American can call in U.S. airstrikes and helicopters, that includes medevac. I've got a special forces lieutenant I'll give you. He's away on mid-tour leave right now, but he'll be back in a few days, he can join you then. John thought a moment. No thanks, I've got it. I don't plan on getting wounded. And I've been working alone with these guys for a while now, not a problem. Okay, but if you change your mind, let me know. Kama's assessment of Duffy, he thought he was nuts, but he took him to be confident and brave very much up to the task at hand. Peter would do all he could to get him the support he knew he'd need to defend Charlie. As an afterthought, Kama added, tomorrow's Easter Sunday, God be with you. Duffy smiled. Thanks. Happy Easter. (laughs) Did you talk to Peter Kama?
1: I did uh, at length, and... Peter regrettably uh, passed away this past year, uh, so it's a shame. And, and Peter is the one that submitted Duffy for the Medal of Honor because of this action. Uh, that Medal of Honor got downgraded to a Distinguished Service Cross at the time uh, with new evidence, and some of that was the voice recording that I talked about. Peter resubmitted the award in 2012 and pushed. He got Senator way involved, other senators, congressmen. Uh, but that whole bureaucracy took years to finally get accomplished and it 's just it's it 's too bad that peter didn 't live to see all this come to fruition or, or live long enough to see the book in its in its final form hmm.
0: I had to read this section here because we do have a lot of military folks that listen to this, and this is a pretty cool gear list. each paratrooper carried. This is getting ready for this operation to go secure this hill. Each paratrooper carried an M16 rifle, seven magazines of ammunition, hand grenades, a small entrenching tool, a canteen, and combat rations, both Vietnamese and American sea rations. The officers also carried 45 caliber pistols. Each company took two M60 machine guns, nine M70 grenade launchers, and a number of law anti, light anti-tank weapons, Claymore mines, and 60 millimeter mortars. The headquarters company weapons platoon brought the heavier 81 millimeter mortars and 90 millimeter recoilless rifles. Piles of ammo, water cans, medical supplies, along with food provisions sat ready to be hauled to Charlie on later lifts after the paratroopers were in place. Duffy brought what many thought was overkill, but he knew it was not. He had a carbine and the standard Army backpack radio, known affectionately as the Prick 25, the PRC 25 FM radio. His assigned radio telephone operator RTO carried that. In Duffy's rucksack, he had a long folding whip antenna for the radio, three extra batteries, and a commercial long-range AM FM radio to monitor Armed Forces Vietnam network news broadcasts. He filled the remainder of of the space in the pack with Lerp rations, a few cans of sea ration fruit, extra socks, a poncho liner, four fragmentary grenades, and four smoke grenades. He stuffed his uniform pockets as well. he filled the four large shirt pockets and cargo pant pockets with two signal panels, compass, signal mirror, strobe light, small flashlight, knife, P38 can opener, map, notebooks wrapped in plastic, pens for writing, plus markers for his map. On his web belt and harness, he'd fastened 28 20-round Ammo magazines, four smoke grenades, two fragmentary grenades, flares, snap links, a sharp killing knife, two water canteens, and a medical kit that included compressed bandages, band aids, tourniquets, morphine, and a self injection blood volume expander. He also clipped on two emergency aircrew survival radios. Pretty good loadout.
1: It, it is, and very few other advisors ever carried those air crew survival <sighs> radios. John was very insightful because in the end, uh, one of those survival radios is what's going to save his life and the, and the life of those who survived that battle.
0: Yeah, having a backup radio and then having another backup radio yep. to that backup radio. The radio that come after, came after the 110 was the 112, so when I got in— in the SEAL teams, we we would get issued the one twelve, which is the same concept. Right. But I had to use that one twelve a couple of times, just in admin situations. But you know, your main primary radio floods out. Right. And one thing that was nice about those PRC one twelves, they were relatively waterproof compared to every other radio we had. So sometimes they would come in handy. And. Apparently Duffy knew that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well it certain it certainly did. Yeah, and his backpack radio it was a prick twenty-five. I think earlier I might have said prick seventy-seven, which was a later radio. Yeah, yeah prick yeah. prick twenty-five for him.
0: Um, uh, again, you've got a map in, in the book here. As these guys they get inserted into this ridgeline. It's a ridgeline, that's what it is. Um, and this one battalion gets assigned this one section of the ridgeline. This section of the ridgeline is called Charlie. We will refer to some of the stuff and again get the book so you can you can see this stuff visually but Charlie one is a section of this ridgeline. That's sort of a saddle. hmm And then there's Charlie two which is a knoll to the south and Charlie three is a little knoll to the north, right? and there's four companies that make up the battalion and Each one of these companies at this juncture has about a hundred guys. Maybe just over a hundred guys each Um mm-hmm. The companies are 111, 112, 113, 114.
1: Right. And headquarters company in addition to that.
0: And the headquarters company is 110. Right. Um, and so they spread out kind of on this ridge line with 113 on the, on the north knoll, 111's in the saddle, 112's on the south knoll, and then 114 has the far kind of south flank and and I guess the 110 is sort of on top of Charlie 2.
1: Right, yeah, Charlie 2's got the headquarters <coughs> 110, and then it's got those two other companies, uh, one uh, defending principally the Southwest and the other the – or the Southeast and the other – no, Southwest and the other the north
0: <laughs> Northeast. And, and, again, just to simplify this, if you're only listening – it's a ridgeline, right. and there's several knolls and some saddles on the ridgeline, and these guys get inserted to lock down this whole thing.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to mention that ridgeline is rising to the north, and and some of it, uh, there's there's high terrain overlooking the the uh, knolls that you just discussed uh, from the northwest. Uh, so Bow is going to become concerned that he doesn't like this terrain uh, because, yes, he's on a ridge, but the ridge is getting higher to the north. There is... Uh, overlooking higher terrain to the Northwest uh, that he's below. And then, and you may get to it, there's a very threatening finger of Knowles pointing at his position from the South.
0: Yeah. It is a tenuous position yes. to say the least. Um, <laughs> these guys get in position. It relatively smooth but you you say here follow on helicopter list brought shovels sandbags additional ammunition water food as well as medical supplies headquarters equipment and a few personal items <laughs> i had to i had to bring this up duffy quickly retrieved his folding aluminum lawn chair from the landing zone it was a small extravagance in which he took pride in having along paratroopers duly harassed him as he carried it up back up the hill and then there was the air mattress right. he had stuffed into his rucksack it might turn into a hell of a fight but john duffy intended to make it is comfortable of a fight as possible <laughs> <laughs> that's dry. i can't that's imagine they be i can't imagine actually that <laughs> aluminum chair i remember guys would occasionally bring like uh, not not in a combat but go into a range or something right you know you'd be out on a range all day sighting in weapons or whatever and someone would show up and these days you know the aluminum chairs are pretty nice i remember one guy had one that was like an aluminum recliner and it had a a self contained umbrella on it. So we're all out in the, in getting beat down in the sun. This is a seal? Yeah, yeah. And he's, of course, like got his feet up with a, with a freaking hell, uh, a uh, umbrella, a sun umbrella over him. Uh, and he kind of won. We're all jealous, you know? Of course, we're going to make fun of him and, you know, tell him he's a wimp, but we were kind of jealous at the same time. So well, Duffy, Duffy's got his aluminum chair.
1: John was comfortable only for a short time, which yeah. I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah.
0: Uh, fast forward a little bit and again the, the, you, you put an incredible amount of research and detail of this so get the book to understand the full picture I'm going to fast forward a little bit to here we go the radios came alive at dawn the tense chatter woke May he grabbed his gear and headed to the command post bunker he found bow already there intently listening to radios with high Duffy soon bent his tall frame through the sandbagged entrance and joined them. Firebell's, Firebase Delta, only two miles to the south of Charlie, was under attack. It was Monday, April 3rd, the day after Easter. Bow turned to May. Form an assault force of 112 and 114 companies. Leave the headquarters 110 company here to defend Charlie 2. Lead Task Force May along that finger-like ridge to the southeast. If the enemy is there, push him off and kill him. The ridge has three knolls, like knuckles of a finger. Advance all the way to the third knuckle and secure it. We need to control that high ground. It should also take some pressure off 2nd Battalion. May acknowledged with his usual positive tone. Yes, sir. He added a request. Can I take Major Duffy with me? No. We've only got one advisor. I have to have him with me. You can call in VNAF airstrikes and artillery is immediately available. Duffy can coordinate U.S. air power from here. So it's on. And May gets, again, these are like classic infantry assault maneuvers that are happening. Yep. Fast forward a little bit, May ordered a coordinated attack by his two companies. They moved up the hill, shooting and maneuvering to gain an advantage against their foe. They got close enough to see hastily constructed enemy fortifications with overhead cover. May called in a strike of VNAF A1 Sky Raiders. The airplanes carried an awesome load of ordnance, including rockets, bombs, napalm, and machine guns. Before the dust settled, May ordered 114 company to renew the attack. Cho led with a reinforced platoon. They overran the bunkers with the loss of one paratrooper killed and another wounded. Four North Vietnamese soldiers lay dead. The the mangled remains of a 51 caliber machine gun sat nearby. May consolidated his task force around the site and prepared to continue the attack to the top of the hill. The NVA didn't give him time. They shot 75-millimeter recoilless rifle rounds. They swept down from the heights, firing and screaming. More paratroopers fell, but they held their ground. May organized a counterattack of his own and soon pushed the enemy back up the hill, only to run out of steam as the force encountered stiff resistance. The morning turned to afternoon as the battle waxed and waned. So this, this had to be at least a little bit different that, these, that the NVA is... They're ready to fight. They're ready to just engage when, for most of the war, it was when they get contacted, they'll do some damage and run away.
1: Yeah, as I said, the war had changed its complexion. This was a, a conventional NVA assault, and they're going to find out they're up against multiple NVA battalions, uh, the elements of the 64th NVA regiment is uh, what they're facing, and then they're end up, before it's over and done, uh, facing a battalion from another regiment. So they're outnumbered. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 or 10 to to 1 on that hilltop
0: I'm gonna fast forward a little bit just before sunset the enemy threw a fresh infantry company into the fight They slammed down the western flank of the paratroopers causing them not causing them to bend but not break task force may held But would advance no further that day the progress they'd made had cost a dozen casualties killed and wounded Colonel Bao faced a decision. Leave the task force in place with hopes of at least securing the first knoll the next day or bring them back to Charlie Two. The shorthanded battalion spread its limited manpower thinly across firebase Charlie. Bao had three separate locations to defend along the ridge, stretching over half a mile to end to end. He had further deployed a huge chunk of his force almost a mile to the southeast, attempting to gain yet more real estate in an increasingly costly fight. The sun set and all he had left to defend Charlie II was 110 company consisting of the headquarters personnel and weapons platoon. Bao issued his order after dark. Task force may disengage, recover your dead and wounded, and return to Charlie II. With as much stealth as possible, May brought his force off the knoll and across the wide saddle. He led his exhausted men back onto Charlie Two a little after 9 p.m. 112 and 114 companies returned to their previous positions on the perimeter. That night, May scratched out a letter to his wife, Sen, by the light of a small flickering candle. He hoped he'd get it out on one of the resupply helicopters. It read, This may be my last letter for a while. The situation is approaching critical. The colonel is doing all that is possible. The NVA will surely push forward and we will do battle. I may soon fight in a ferocious fight. The commanders and paratroopers are ready. Perhaps all will not return from this fight. That is the fate of soldiers serving their country. My thoughts will always be with you. My heart will always belong to you. My strength is a tribute to your love. Our children are a testament to our love. Do not worry when you hear reports of the battle. I am ready and I know how to survive in combat. I will come back home to you, my precious love. I will fight the dragons. And return to your arms.
1: And I included his letter in there, and that took some discussion with him and his, his wife to, uh, to see if we wanted to, to put that in there, but in the end we decided to. And, and it just really, I, I wanted this story to be as much a human interest story as just a combat account, and that really shows the the humanity of, uh, of May and his family.
0: Yeah, no, that's, did did, did they have like a copy of the letter?
1: Uh, it was a recollection. I think I don't know if they have the actual copy, but I was able to get uh, get the words.
0: Yeah, and again, I mean, I fast forwarded you. You go through the courtship and the children, like right. all that stuff, and it's it is very obviously a very human story. And here's this guy. What's interesting about that, as I was reading that, you know, I've read plenty of sort of. Uh, I guess they call them death letters, you know, in case I don't make it. Type right. type letters. And and here's May who's writing a uh, hey look it's coming but I'm going to be okay. I know how to survive and I'm ready. That's a a very positive attitude for him to have going into this situation for sure.
1: And she gets that letter uh and she gets it right or right after she got it the the news <coughs> the available public information of what's going on in the highlands gets very dire and, and disturbing.
0: All right, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit to where the team has now been on the ground for three days. It's been three days since arrival, so here we go. Thursday, April 6th, arrived with Charlie once again shrouded in fog. Eeriness settled over the hilltop. All wondered what the enemy was up to behind the mist. They could only imagine. Ah-Nam, which, which means big brother, which is what they called Lieutenant Colonel Bao, one of the nicknames they gave him. Assembled his officers and staff, save Big Hung because of 113's distance from the rest of the battalion. He summarized their situation and issued an order that he'd relay to Hung by radio. The NVA have us surrounded. They hold the mountaintops. They've positioned their guns to shoot down the helicopters. It is here we must do battle. It is here we must bleed them. Do not let them take our positions. This battle is to the end. Tell the paratroopers to fight bravely. Tell them to aim all their bullets well, for we may lose the ability to resupply. Dig in deep and prepare for combat. Any trooper not ready to fight, I want him off the mountain. I'll not have him die with us. I'll not have him share in our glory. So that's a dire situation. Uh, these, these anti-aircraft guns, these 51 caliber, right. it, it, it seems like this is an extreme amount of enemy anti-aircraft weaponry that they have in this situation is it, that
1: it was more than we had seen inside of South Vietnam at any point up up to that battle yeah okay. they had numerous 51 calibers and that's a, a deadly weapon against uh, against helicopters yeah
0: that that's the impression i got as i as i read the the way this battle unfolds and it seemed like most of the time there was enough i don't know if it's called air superiority but there was enough confidence in the helicopters look sure there were some landing zones that would be so bad but it wouldn't last for very long, or they could put down fire and eventually get in there. Right. This one is the 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 NVA is definitely looking to deny access from the air.
1: Yep, they were. They were.
0: <sighs> Fast forward a little bit. The fog lifted shortly before noon. Duffy went back to the to work running airstrikes. He teamed with May and High to integrate all. Available fire support onto the most most lucrative targets with the priority of air support going against NVA for uh, off Offensives far to the north and south little could be allocated to Charlie. So there's other Battles that are taking place that are soaking up a lot of the air support
1: Yes, and the the biggest one was that thrust across the demilitarized zone in the north that was the the, and 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 the south started losing Quang Chi province the enemy was just moving rapidly to the south and then once they came out of Cambodia uh, towards Saigon, they got as far as Anlock uh, before they were stopped. But, yeah, there was a worry on all fronts, uh, the, the loss of Quang Tri Province to the north and possibly Hue City, <laughs> which was the old imperial capital, and then that threat against Saigon to the uh, to the south. Uh, so the central highlands, though it was critically important for not getting <laughs> Vietnam cut in half at the waist, uh, as, as the Viet Minh had done against the French. I mean, we hear about Dien Bien Phu being the decisive battle uh, but really, the uh, the thrust across the South and the destruction of French Group Mobile 100 uh, contributed to the end of that war as, uh, uh, against the French as, as much as any. Uh, so yeah, all those worries, but yeah, there's demands for air everywhere, and though the U.S. is there to provide air support and in the north some naval gunfire, uh, it's, it's stretched thin. <laughs>
0: You say this, John developed a technique of constantly badgering forward air controllers to divert their airstrikes that were not ava- that were not able to hit their primary targets because of weather or situational changes. He got a number of much-needed missions that way. So he would just stay on the radio. Hey, what do you got? You got any extra ammo? Is there anybody that can't drop? Is there anybody that needs to get rid of some ammo?
1: And again, that's John Duffy. If you know John, you can see him doing that. He's yeah? just he like just a
0: Brooklyn guy out there trying to make it happen. Yep, He won't, let, he and won't, won't let go. <laughs> Uh, For the rest of the day, Duffy worked with Ford Air Controllers, Covey 507, 531, and 546, putting in Air Force F-4 Phantoms and Navy A-7 Corsairs on the finger. May and High added Vienna AF A-1 Sky Raiders and A-37 Dragonflies to the mix, along with a number of artillery barrages. The effort produced good effects with the destruction of bunkers and mortars and two dozen secondary explosions. They'd inflicted pain on their enemy fast-forward a little bit the day's good weather ended clouds billowed around Charlie and the airstrike ceased for the day the paratroopers faced the evening with an on, ominous feeling that conditions were developing for a big fight on Charlie disturbing radio calls at 8 o'clock that night confirmed those suspicions John received the message in English over his advisor channel at the same time the 2nd Brigade transmitted it on the Arvin Network in Vietnamese Intelligence indicates the NVA plan to overrun Charlie. Repeat, intelligence believes the NVA intend to overrun your positions. Bow grabbed the handset from High's radio operator. This is Gray Tiger, request to maneuver on offensive operations to take the fight to the enemy. I don't want to sit in place on Charlie and wait to absorb the attack the enemy has designed. Airborne doesn't sit and wait, it attacks. I'll consolidate, leave one company on Charlie 2, and launch an attack with the rest of the battalion. The reply came back immediately from the brigade commander, Colonel Colonel Lick himself. Negative. Defend in place. Block any potential crossing of the ridge. Fight to the death on Charlie. Those are your orders. Fight to the death. So, Bao, being an airborne commander, wants to go on the attack. He does, yeah.
1: Light, uh, highly mobile forces, just sitting there defending, uh, waiting for the enemy to mass his force and descend upon you. Uh, but they get the message loud and clear. That was their mission—to stay there to the bitter end and uh, and defend that uh, that hilltop. <clears throat> Which they do in fine form, and the only reason there's going to be any survivors at all is they are out of the ability to to damage the enemy. Uh, So the the few people left uh, are are withdrawn off, Mm -hmm. off the hill.
0: Fast forward a little bit. Sunday marked a week since the 11th Airborne Battalion's air assault onto Charlie. It also marked a new conviction among the paratroopers. The line had been drawn in the sand. They would fight until victory or until death. The weather cleared by noon. Helicopters arrived with more ammunition, water, and rations, including some live chickens for roasting. They had also brought mail to the delight of the beleaguered paratroopers. Peter Kama even put some candy bars on the aircraft for John. He shared them with the others. April 11th. Fast forward April 11th, 1972. This day, hell unleashed its fury at a place called Charlie. At midnight, John Duffy's radio came to life. Dusty side and this is Covey 555. Following message relayed from blue chip through carbon outlaw. Arc light inbound to target location per your request. Estimated drop in 30 minutes. John rousted bow and high in the operations bunker. May join them there. High radioed the companies. Commanders alerted their paratroopers. As the drop time approached, Each crouched down in a foxhole trench or bunker, held his helmet on his head, and opened his mouth, hoping to equalize the pressure of the coming blasts that he had been told would be very close. Terror rained from the sky. Hundreds of 500 and 750-pound bombs fell from the high-flying B-52s, the closest hit only 300 yards from One Fourteen company, blasting the nearest knoll of the Finger Ridge, exploding its shoulders, and smashing a swath of obliteration along the ridgeline to the southeast. The earth shook. The destruction was horrific and lethal. Debris rained down even on nearby friendlies. The NVA answered the blow with barrages of artillery, mortars, and recoilless rifle fire while they licked their wounds and rethought their attack plans. Their shells blasted the hill, but they did little to paratroopers still lying low in their trenches after the B-52 strike. The shelling continued sporadically through the night. Even so, those not standing watch were able to fall back asleep for some moments of rest, fitful as it might have been.
1: Yeah, those B-52 strikes, John wanted them badly. Uh, Of course, priority was going a lot of other areas. Uh, one thing that I do point out in the book, Peter Kama, before he became the, uh, the, the brigade uh, advisor, uh, was uh, working with the uh, commander of, of all forces in Vietnam, uh, uh, the deputy commander at the time, General Wayand. So he had a connection to the top mm-hmm. levels of, uh, of the of command in, uh, in Vietnam and was able to leverage that uh, on a couple of occasions to get some P-52 strikes diverted. Uh, but, yeah, John wanted those B-52s badly, and, and he got that, that first one uh, that night just after midnight.
0: What's the closest you ever were when one of those arc light strikes went Oh, down? it was a
1: good ways away. Uh, it, it
0: sounds like they were just insane.
1: Yeah. Before that, John thinks that he was the first one, and I have not been able to confirm it. John thinks he was the first one to work B-52 strikes in that close of proximity to friendly forces. Uh, that before that they were always tried to keep them 500 meters away. Uh, he brought that down to 300 meters. I, th- I think in one case, I don't remember if it was this one or the next one, but they said, hey, you got to be at least 500 meters away. Yeah. And John said, yeah, we are. Yeah, close no, no knowing he wasn't nearly that, that far away.
0: Uh, yeah, it, it just turns, I think you said three football fields in length just total destruction just yeah. destroys everything in that area.
1: It is a normal arc light would be three B-52s flying in, in uh, Formation and, and letting all their bombs go. That's yeah, quite quite a massive w- uh, path of destruction
0: <sighs> um, Fast forward a little bit reports come in of more NVA soldiers only a few hundred yards to the southwest more kilos came in to resupply the beleaguered 11th Battalion, both VN, AF, and American. The 51 caliber machine guns fired relentlessly. The few choppers that braved an approach took debilitating hits before turning away. None were able to get through the deadly wall of bullets. NVA machine guns blazed away at any helicopter that came in range. At least 10 51 caliber positions now ringed Charlie. That's a nightmare. Yep. yep. Duffy turned to May. Those machine guns are out there to kill. They're doing their job. They're good. Yes, big problem for us. Problem for resupply and evacuate wounded. John nodded. I'm worried the fire is too intense. They can't get in. All we're going to do is get more helicopters shot down. I'm closing the LZ. Tell me if you or Colonel Bao have a problem with that. Duffy took the radio handset from his RTO. Seller 5-1, this is Dusty Cyanide. I'm closing, to the, I'm closing the LZ to Huey resupply and medevac helicopters. They will not survive the gunfire from the ridgelines ridge above. I repeat, the LZ is closed. There is no reason attempting the impossible. I've got to get rid of some of those 51 cows before we get any more helos in here. He put in more sets of F-4s on the surrounding machine gun positions and asked Covey to hit the suspected 130-millimeter gun positions with anything else he had available. John Duffy had two problems he must resolve if the 11th Airborne Battalion was to survive. Kill the anti-aircraft machine guns and eliminate the 130-millimeter guns. And I haven't really mentioned the 130-millimeter guns yet. They're they're in the book. But there was some heavy artillery that the NVA had That was punishing the guys up on Charlie.
1: It was. Just pounded and pounded and pounded that hilltop. And John did his best. I mean, that's a a long-range artillery weapon. And he tried to get airstrikes in on him. He will eventually get another B-52 strike out there on him and never throughout the battle was able to completely eliminate those
0: 130-millimeter guns. Yeah, it sounds like he suspected they were dug in, Mm -hmm. like maybe on tracks getting wheeled into caves and pushed back out to shoot.
1: Exactly. They'd bring them out to fire and then put them in the protection of the cave. (sighs)
0: Fast forward a little bit. April 12th, 1972. Exploding artillery shells took the 11th Battalion, shook the 11th Battalion paratroopers awake. The 111 Company took the brunt. Heavy artillery, mortar, rocket, and recoilless rifle rained down on Hill 960. Charlie won. 75 big 130 millimeter shells slammed onto the hilltop. Ugh. Oh. So. Let me give you some perspective here. Uh, I was in a, a f- in a combat outpost in Ramadi, and we got hit with three hundred and twenty millimeter mortars, mm-hmm. and it was a shocking nightmare. And here they are taking 75 130s. and thirties. That is just I, I I can't even I can't imagine what that what that's like
1: on top of one company, and and I don't know if we'll get to it, but uh, it's either, I think it's later, uh, Charlie 2 uh, took 300 rounds in <sighs> just a couple of hours one day.
0: Yeah, I, I remember seeing um, from that from that mortar strike I was talking about, that was 120 millimeter, we found f- pieces of frag. The pieces of frag are, are you know, when a lot of times, When people think of fragmentation, they think of these little tiny things that are the size of a BB or the size of you know like a a little quarter inch piece of frag. No chunks. There was chunks. We found frag that was nine inches long and weighed like a pound and a half. Just gnarly metal shards flying through the air. That's how you see. That's why you see guys sometimes they lose their entire leg or they lose an arm if they get hit with a piece. That's just not some little little tiny fragmentation. It is a massive chunk of steel flying through the air. So, and that's, I'm talking about two or three mortars hitting a combat outpost. You're talking about 75, even bigger shells. It's, 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 hard, to, it's hard to comprehend what that does to you. I mean, just the concussion alone from that. Right. And by the way, I was sitting in a concrete building, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not sitting in a foxhole with a, with a poncho over my head.
1: Right, that they that they dug and those figures, uh, you know. Luckily, John, as I mentioned earlier, he kept a, a, a log, a journal a, every day. So I've got all the call signs of the facts, the type of aircraft, number of aircraft, location of aircraft that were brought in, and the counts that they made at the time of, of the artillery strikes. You know, uh, Charlie One received uh, seventy rounds of, uh, of, of one hundred thirty
0: millimeter fire. Yeah. What a nightmare. Um, Fast forward a little bit the artillery stopped and what that only means one thing the artillery stopped the NVA Company rose from the steep gully less than a hundred yards to the west of Charlie one trench line scores of enemy soldiers raced forward The fight was on the 111 paratroopers reacted in well-practiced battle drill lieutenant thin the company commander quickly assessed the situation. Claymore mines had bloodied the lead elements of the attack. His soldiers thinned the advancing enemy ranks with disciplined, well-aimed rifle flyer. They threw hand grenades in close combat. So this is just, it's on. Yep. Um, here's another one, fast forward past that skirmish. A heavy artillery barrage hit Charlie Two at 1130. The 130 millimeter shells pummeled the hill. One slammed into Bao's bunker with a deafening explosion. It turned the place to rubble. Broken timbers and shredded sandbags covered the commander. Hai got there first. He'd only been several yards away. May joined in seconds. They began pulling debris off An nam their big brother. They summoned Doc Lu, who came running with Duffy close behind. With the help of the nearby paratroopers, they pulled Bao clear. Doc Lou went to work, but immediately looked up and shook his head. Their beloved commander was dead. High took the, the loss hardest of all. May didn't have time to grieve. He was now the commander. All responsibility rested on his shoulders. John Duffy looked at the lifeless body, sad that Bao had not been able to utter his final words in death. A feeling overcame John. He sensed what Colonel Bao's last thoughts must have been. He had no doubt. He shared his notion with the others. I know what Colonel Bao wanted to say before he died. I hear his voice in my heart. Tell my wife I loved her true. Tell my children to remember me. Tell my paratroopers to never surrender. To you, my officers, one final salute.
1: That's John Duffy, the poet, but he felt that in his heart, and he noted those words down at the time, and and those are on his website of of poetry, I think, probably in his book as well. Yeah.
0: So now they've lost this, their leader. Their beloved leader. Their beloved leader, big brother, Colonel Bao, killed in one of these insane barrages of artillery. Things don't get much better. Fast forward a little bit. Covey brought in a flight of A7 Corsairs off a Navy carrier of the Coral Sea. Their first pass on the south perimeter went terribly wrong. They dropped short of the target. Their bombs hit the 114 company trenches, killing three and wounding seven. Frustrated and angry, John moved the strike well to the southwest where he could expend their remaining ordnance before heading back to the ship. He targeted 75 millimeter recoilless rifle and anti-aircraft gun positions. Duffy, had also forward, Duffy also had forward air controllers continue to place strikes on the 130 millimeter gun positions in the hills far to the southwest. He firmly believed those big guns were on rails that backed them into tunnels after they had fired. He figured that's how they had survived all the airstrikes. That made them tough targets, but they had to be killed. At 4 p.m., a 130 millimeter round hit the entrance to Duffy's bunker, knocking him unconscious. He regained his senses, but felt warm, wet blood covering his head and chest. His back hurt too, where more shrapnel had torn into him. His ears rang. He couldn't hear. His head throbbed from a horrendous concussion. Rubble and body surrounded him. John shoved the closest guy and said, Come on, let's go. The guy lay still. He didn't move. He was dead. John couldn't believe it. All of them dead, save his RTO. Yet John had lived. How could that be? How, in the same space and time, could five men die and he live? He stared at the carnage in shock. Finally, he grabbed his car, 15, and dragged himself from the rubble, not at all appreciating the seriousness of his own injuries. His radio operator followed, stunned, without the radio. He was severely wounded and badly dazed. He wandered off, stumbling and babbling incoherently. John called after him. He started to run after him, hobble after him, actually. He had only taken a few steps when an artillery round exploded nearby, shredding the young man who'd served John so faithfully. With no time to grieve, Major Duffy returned to his crumpled bunker to retrieve his radios. So he about gets killed in that one. Um, yeah, he ends up. Being, he was wounded
1: five different, five separate times during the battle.
0: And th- this is a, probably a good time to talk about some of these books, some of these poems uh, that, that Major Duffy wrote. He ended up right? He's written six books of poetry, and one of the books, as I, I mentioned earlier, is called "The Battle for Charlie." And, and it's a, a chronological book of poems about what he experienced, and I got one of the here, here's one of those poems that relates exactly to what happened. The poem is called "Direct Hit." And it says, "The dust is choking. The others are dead. The radio still talks." I must be alive. The loud ringing noise, will it ever stop? I am half buried in someone else's grave. My bunker is destroyed. I crawl over the bodies, all are dead or dying. I must kill that gun. <sighs>
1: That's probably his biggest frustration out of that battle is he could not silence those 130-millimeter guns they kept they kept firing.
0: Yeah, and when you're talking about, again, these barrages that are 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 shells, that's incomprehensible to me. It really is. It's just I, I can't even fathom what that must be like sitting in a foxhole with 30 or 40 or 50 of these explosions with the metal. It's just, it's insane to even think about. So, now we're going to April 13th. I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. Uh, And and by the way, I'm fast forwarding past, just about every page is filled with heroic, insane combat. Um, Fast forward a little bit though. High shook John Duffy awake in the middle of the night. VC surround 113 they attack big hung need help and there's two there's two characters called hung skinny hung and big hung, right? Um, they're they're both leaders in the companies John raised up on an elbow his head still pounded from his concussion. He felt groggy and disoriented his thoughts not yet totally clear He ached in every inch of his being need to focus high went on Hung here, many hundred soldier move in the dark. Then attack. He think big attack. Maybe whole battalion. Duffy asked, what time is it? 100. Christ, one o'clock in the fucking morning. Do you really think they're coming at him with a major attack in the middle of the night? We hurt them in daytime yesterday. Maybe try different tonight. Maybe so. Okay, let me see what I can do. Can you request artillery flares be ready to go in case I'm able to get some tack air? John got on his radio any Covey any Covey this is dusty cyanide need Some help any Covey any Covey He was surprised by an immediate reply Hello dusty cyanide this Is Covey 521 And Eventually that night he gets a A a specter On station
1: AC 130
0: God bless him (laughs) Gets them on and is Able to prevent That attack from being overwhelming Right Fast forward a little bit. Duffy moved about the hilltop with what many saw as reckless abandon. The long radio antenna swaying over his head marked him as a target. For Major John Duffy, though he was a man on a mission, he had one purpose in life, and that was to direct airstrikes trying to save this battalion, his battalion. That was his task, his duty. Nothing else mattered. He'd jump in a trench, work a target, watch the fighters roll in and release their ordnance, then pick up and run to another trench for a better view of his next target. Enemy gunners caught on to his strategy and open up on him as he ran, shells bursting all around him. So this is one of the things that you see throughout this battle is he just he's doing whatever he needs to do to get in a position where you can actually see and call and direct this fire in the most effective way. Exactly. And and every time he does it, he's putting his life at risk. And seeing a big ass antenna on a guy, there's no more primary target, especially in this group, than an American with a radio on his back.
1: And you, he's over, what was he, six foot three? Six foot three. Yeah.
0: Yeah, this guy had to be the most targeted human <laughs> imaginable at this point. They only see one American, he's obviously the ones calling in airstrikes and he's running around like a maniac.
1: Oh, and that's where I came up with the title for this book because we look at Duffy. I mean, he's the biggest hero of the battle, but also May and High and these other guys. And then there's a Lieutenant Lapp that's going to turn up in this too, and Doc Lou and all of them. It just is as I got into researching and writing the most extraordinary valor that I had seen in anything that I've that I've loved, that I've looked at. That just really uh, one hell of a, a
0: fight. Yeah. No. It's. Like I said, every page. I mean, I guess maybe this battle starts maybe page 110 or 115 or 120 in the book, but like every page after that, there's there's a heroic scene. (laughs) Speaking of which, Captain Skinny Hong had a hard fight in the saddle. He pushed two platoons onto the LZ through stiff resistance. A larger enemy force came out of the gully to meet him. The 112 company struggled to hold, but slowly gave ground. A little after 2 p.m., the NVA moved around their flank, forcing Hung to withdraw back inside Charlie 2. The LZ could not be retaken. May grabbed the radio handset and put in two flights of Sky Raiders on the saddle. Major Leigh Van May had one last idea for salvation. He summoned Lieutenant Thin. Brother Thin, I need you to take your company 111 to the east those who can still fight. I know your numbers are small, but we have to do this find a good spot Secure it establish a new LZ. We are running out of ammunition. We need water. We need food. We need medical supplies We've got to get our wounded out Finn displayed his normal paratrooper zeal. Yes, sir. We will get it done. They're, they're trying to establish another LZ because these LZs that they've been trying to secure are just getting overwhelmed the, the, the NVA know that if they establish an LZ then they'll be able to get resupplied right. um, There's a you know a small battle that I, I hate to even say a small battle But they try and secure it get pushed back and finally May decides hey, let's find an alternate landing zone somewhere
1: yeah, it may be a little quieter out to the east out there, so move move east to get one. And and I would mention that Lieutenant Ting is uh, is one of May's favorite lieutenants, favorite favorite commanders. They're they're close.
0: Yeah, and 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 you go into their relationship in the book. So they go out, and I'm going to fast forward a little bit. At dusk, Hai saw the band of paratroopers returning from the east. He rushed to the far side of the trench line, waiting as the small group moved closer. He saw 114 company soldiers mixed with the small band of 111 company survivors. All appeared wary but in good order, carrying the wounded and dead. May joined high. They looked for Lieutenant Khan. They didn't see him. They didn't see any officers or sergeants from 111 company. May scanned the bodies. Looking down at one, he shuddered. It was Lieutenant Tin, his beloved Lieutenant Tin. With emotion filling his voice, one of the paratroopers reported to May. Lots of NVA. We fought through and got to a good LZ site. Then they hit us in force. Machine guns, mortars, and recoilless rifles. More than a hundred enemy. We fought hard but couldn't hold them. The NVA shot Lieutenant Tin in the head. He's dead. They killed Mr. Ba and Lieutenant Khan and Sergeant Lung. Others are dead too, many wounded. The 111 company was gone, destroyed in battle. Between yesterday's fight on Hill 960 and the excursion to secure a new landing zone, the enemy had killed all the officers and sergeants and whittled the unit down to a handful of effective fighters. May placed those few still walking into the perimeter sector manned by headquarters company. Soldiers stacked the dead on the growing rows of corpses and carried the severely wounded to the medical aid station where Doc Lou content- tended them as best he could. Most medical supplies had run out. The badly wounded lay there helpless and frustrated, dealing with the agony of their pain and the guilt of not being further worth in the battle. High in May found Duffy, still working airstrikes. May told him there will be no new LZ. NVA hit 111 company hard, many casualty. Tin is dead, all officers and sergeants dead. The news shocked Duffy, but he remained resolute. Okay, then we fight with what we've got. I'm going to rain airstrikes down on the bastards. High, you, will you do the same with VNAF? And Artie, yes, Duffy, good. Let's get to it. We've got some fighting to do. Desperate. It's a desperate situation.
1: Yeah, but they do, you know, is it Duffy. Well, and, and May, too. May had a, a moment of, uh, of uh, I will not say despair, that's too much, but but a moment where he was just doubting what was going on. And Duffy helped rally him, and he came right back and, uh, and, and stood as the rock of the battalion, And Duffy is raining airstrikes down, and that's all that they could do. I mean, that's their situation. They've got their orders. They've got the situation that they're in, and they'll make the very best of it that they can.
0: April 14, 1972. Fighting continued through the night. From time to time, friendly artillery flares drifted across the dark sky, swaying beneath tiny parachutes, lighting sections of the battlefield beneath them. Shapes moved on the ground, paratroopers took care. They only fired when they had sure targets well within range. Each man sighted carefully breathed out and pulled the trigger with an oh so steady squeeze. Ammunition had become frighteningly scarce. The North Vietnamese fired with much more abandon. They had ammo, they were being resupplied. The paratroopers were not. <sighs> The attacks come through the night. Um, A heavy barrage of enemy shelling shattered the morning calm. Artillery, mortars, rockets, and recoilless rifles. The rain of explosions didn't stop. The battle for Charlie raged into its 12th day. As he'd done so many times during the battle, John Duffy got up out of the trenches and braved exploding artillery to get a view of the enemy gun positions. He moved to the edge of the perimeter, radio on his back with its recognizable antenna high over his head. Enemy fire hit close by. He moved. More fire. He moved again. A North Vietnamese recoilless rifle shell exploded in the ground beside him. Fragments ripped into his left arm. He put pressure on his wound to slow the bleeding and then grabbed his radio handset as a flight of U.S. Army AH-1 Cobra attack helicopters checked in. Dusty Cyanide, this is Cougar 38. Cougar 3-8, glad to have you on station. I've got enemy troop movement along the finger to the south, southeast of Charlie. Give me some runs there. A lot of 51 Cal fire in the area. If you see any, please engage. The team of three Cobra gunships made several passes over the finger, expending all their ordnance. They headed to to Contoum for For more fuel and ammunition. Duffy watched them go. What an awesome killing machine, he thought. Cobras carried 52 rockets on their stubby wings with 4,000 rounds of machine gun and 300 rounds of grenades in their movable nose turrets. A few mounted a deadly 20-millimeter Vulcan Gatling gun with 950 high explosive rounds. The Cougar flight called as they departed. We'll be back Dusty. Another Covey 534 came on station and worked more strikes against the several machine guns John identified. Trouble was when the fast jets dropped their bombs close to the gun positions they only quieted them for a time. Once the jets departed the guns were soon back in operation. Only a direct Direct hit really did the job. John concluded that Cobra helicopters were the best in putting ordnance right into the gun pits and silencing the weapons for good. Cobras, coming in hot.
1: Yeah, that's a heck of a duel. Any Cobra pilot will tell you, going against a fifty-one caliber (laughs) is not a lot of fun at all. Uh, They were deadly against helicopters uh, and, and even Cobras. And, uh, well, as you say, there's more in the book to be read, but I, I've got one account in there of one of our Cobras taking a, a 51 hit and, uh, and the damage that it did. Yeah,
0: talk it. us through it. Uh,
1: well, they were up, uh, I think it was the day before, if I remember where I have it in there, Uh, But it was one of our our Cobras up there, and there was a uh, 51, and they were going against a 51, and uh, took a round through the front seat. The front seater, uh, Dave Mesa, was leaning over working his turret, uh, and the round came in just over his shoulder uh, and would have hit him in the head or the chest if he'd been sitting up straight and not working his turret, and it went through the armor plate behind his seat. Uh, and and wounded the pilot in the back seat, so they got the thing back over by the, the highway by the base where the second brigade was and landed. The pilot was pulled out in medevac, and Dave got to spend the night uh, with the uh, with the Vietnamese airborne brigade headquarters before he could get back to Pleiku the uh, the next day. Uh, and there's a picture in the book of Dave standing there with the armor plate that they'd removed out of the seat. You can see the hole that the 51 caliber made in, in the aircraft. It's uh, yeah, it's a bad weapon for. For helicopters.
0: Yeah, the the armor's not doing a ton of good against a fifty-one. No, caliber. small arms <laughs> it helps. Small arms
1: it helps. Of course, the Cobras in those days, the uh, the, the <clears throat> canopy was just plexiglass, so you got no protection from that. But it did have armored seat and an armor plate behind the seat that would give you some protection from small arms. Of course, the Apaches today are they're well suited to take all kinds of hits. I flew Apaches the last six years of my army career, but yeah, the Cobra. Could be damaged by 51 <sighs>
0: Uh <clears throat> Fast forward a little bit. The 2nd Airborne Brigade hatched a plan for an emergency resupply. A Huey approached Charlie from altitude. It flew high to minimize the risk from anti-aircraft machine guns. The paratrooper f- paratroopers fixed their hopeful eyes on the drama above. Once over Charlie, streams of tracers stretched toward the chopper. The crew kicked out well packed bundles of food, ammunition, and medical supplies. They missed the mark landing outside the perimeter. The enemy got to them in a flash. Yeah.
1: And they they were desperate by this point. They about out of ammo, no water for days, out of medical supplies. Yeah, very frustrating.
0: fast forward a little bit more. Early afternoon, another flight of Cobras checked in. Chief Warrant Officer Dan Jones flew lead. I piloted the second Cobra flying on his wing. Firebase Charlie, this is Panther 1-3. Panther lead, this is Dusty Cyanide. I have multiple targets for you, all 51 caliber machine guns. So what are you thinking when you hear that? (laughs) Yeah.
1: We've got our work cut out for us. Yeah, there's some trepidation. Oh, shit. But then, again, you get right back focused. we got to do what we can to help these guys. John Duffy and I, well as I said, we've talked a number of times since. And, and I have always, as I do to all the special forces guys that are down there that we're supporting, I said, whoa, you guys are just hanging it all out down there on the ground. I'm sure glad I'm in a helicopter. Uh, Don, John has said every single time, I'm glad I wasn't in that helicopter, and I'm glad I was on the ground. You guys have no, you're up there with this little tinfoil around you, uh, taking all these rounds, getting shot right at you. There's no way I would want to do that. Uh, okay, John, I understand that. I still have <laughs> tremendous respect for you on the ground, and I would not would not want to be there.
0: Uh, the crews knew the risk. 51 caliber machine guns seemed designed specifically to shoot down helicopters. They'd done plenty of damage over the past weeks. Panther 1-3 calmly acknowledged ro- Roger, Dusty Cyanide. We're inbound. Give us the positions when we get there. The Cobras made several attacks on enemy guns. Bullets streamed past their cockpits as the NVA gunners tried to bring them down. Attack helicopter pilots knew that rolling in on a 51 position was always dicey. Tracers came at them and missed by a few feet. Pilots tried to get rockets onto the machine guns before the enemy got lucky and blasted them out of the sky. The pilots held steady, focusing on controlling their helicopters, lining up the gun sights, and shooting. Panther 1-3 fire Team took small arms hits, but kept running at their targets again and again and again. John Duffy observed throughout the shootout, taking it all in, commenting to himself, they're coming in out of the sun, going, in, going for the high gun first. That's good. Shit, green and red tracers crossing in front of them. They're taking fire from everywhere. There, they punched off a salvo of rockets right on target. The gunners were surely blown up in that explosion. Wingman rolling in on the second gun. They're keeping at it. It's a dance of death. I love those guys. Badass Cobra pilots so steady under such heavy fire. God, I'm glad I'm on the ground. <laughs> The Panther lead radioed dusty cyanide Panther one three be advised running low on fuel out of ammo We're breaking station for rearm refuel Roger one three four gun crews destroyed four guns taken out. Good work Hurry back How long are you on station for in that scenario is that like five minutes?
1: Oh, it's more than it's probably 15 minutes or so number of runs
0: how can you tell when you're getting shot at? it because you're seeing tracers.
1: Yeah, you can. You see tracers. Sometimes you see tracers. Sometimes you don't. Uh, that that first tour, when I got shot down in the Mohawk by a 37 millimeter anti aircraft, I didn't see anything until my whole right wing exploded. So I didn't even see any tracers. But yeah, we'd uh, 51s. You'd routinely see tracers.
0: Now we in the SEAL teams, we would say tracers work both ways. So you can tell where you're shooting, but people can also tell you where you're shooting from. Is it when you see tracers, can you start to track them back oh, yeah. to where the oh, gun yeah. is? Yeah.
1: In fact, that's how we'd see where, so that's, the, where that's, the gun position <laughs> is, where the tracers are
0: coming from. Yeah. Is it better to be lead, bird or wingman?
1: I don't know that it much matters. <laughs> I mean, on the first run, it's probably better to be lead because they may not see or know you're coming until you roll in and start shooting, and then they're ready for number two. Uh, but once you make more than one run, and we've made several runs that day on different positions, and they know well that you're, that you're there. And they're trying to get you.
0: Is it your speed that, that makes you safe? Like, how, what are you doing to, to, to increase your survivability? Shooting.
1: Um, yeah, I don't think it's speed in a helicopter. It's just luck. I mean, they, they can't uh, get right at you that first time. Most of the time they can't. Now, when I was shot down and and captured, those were fifty one calibers too and maybe a couple things larger, and there were several weapons positions engaged me at the same time. And I saw tracers all around the cockpit, and then we started taking hits. So it's just I think it's difficult for them to get that first round right on you, and so hopefully you can get some rockets on him Mm -hmm. before he gets his aim close enough where he can bring you out of the sky. It's not a desired target. A Cobra against a fifty one. Is not desired. It has to be. We wouldn't just go out looking for 51 positions to engage. In fact, if we were just out on a mission, we saw some 51s, probably turn it over to a FAC or whatever, and we'd just get clear, out of there. clear the area. But in this case, you know, there were lives on the line, and we had to do what we could do to to help. Uh, luckily, we got through it okay, and not taking any 51 hits, as I pointed out, uh, that other Panther flight did take 51 hits. <sighs> <clears throat>
0: What does it look like? Because I, I had the experience where I was up in uh, Fallon, Nevada. We were doing training with the helicopter squadrons. And it was, I, I was in my first SEAL platoon, so I wasn't, didn't know what I was doing. And I was calling in a helicopter to pick us up, my squad. We were out on a training mission, and I was calling them in to pick us up. And it's the desert, and I'm standing there kind of standing up and I'm calling this aircraft and this helicopters, I, I think there's, I think it's so obvious where we are. And I said, Hey, you know, I'm right here, you know, go ahead and put it down, you know, to our West. And he's like, I don't see you. And I mean, if you, if I would have had to bet money, I would have bet a month's paycheck that this guy easily saw us. He couldn't see us at all because what I didn't realize at the time as a young seals, he's looking at you know, many, many, many square miles of stuff. And I'm just looking up at the sky at one or two helicopters. So it's real obvious when you're overhead in the, in, in in this situation, can you see the friendly forces? Can you, can you get an idea where John Duffy is? Are you close enough to the ground to see the guy's expressions? Like what's it like from that perspective? Yeah, you can see guys on the ground. Um, Can you tell who's who? Can you tell no friendly from, Not
1: not usually. I mean, if you get low enough and close enough and can pay enough attention, then you can because the NVA are mostly wearing either green or tan uniforms. It looks different, and a lot of them have pith helmets on uh, and some regular. But you you can. But as you said, it's difficult to focus your view exactly where you need to focus your view. Uh, And so when John was working with us as guns, he's not so much – at least in that situation, going against the guns, he's not so much describing where he is exactly, he's describing where the weapons positions are. So he's keying that off of various pieces of terrain. Hey, you see that ridge, you see that knuckle, that that direction and and there, and, and then, you know, eventually we get the tracers coming up so we can see it. Now, later when we come back, he is trying to describe his position to us. Of course, it was dark then and we couldn't see him, but we could see fires and adjust. Um, Routinely, to take that back a little bit when we we're extracting special forces teams uh, out, of the, uh, out of the jungle, they would describe to us where they were and all, and we could generally see them on the ground unless they were hidden by the jungle canopy, mm-hmm. so we could, we could pick them out. Uh, so, yeah, the long answer to the question, I can fully understand your situation at Fallon where you say, hey, guys, we're down here, we see you, and we're up, you know, I don't know what altitude they were, but anywhere from several hundred feet up to maybe a 1,000 or 2,000 feet. They're looking out, and especially yeah. Fallon, over an expanse of desert as far yeah. as they can see. Uh, and, okay, where are you? So they, you, yeah. need, you need some focus. And I had
0: the uh, aircraft panel sewed inside my floppy hat. And I thought, oh, I'm such a pro. I'll just break out my, my you know, this little orange, yeah. whatever, six inch square. <laughs> can you see me now? The guy's like, you're an idiot.
1: <laughs> now, what does work and is helpful is uh, is uh, flashies, the mirror. A mirror. Yeah. We can the mirror. You can see exactly. Okay, that's yep. where that guy is. I see his mirror uh and we do that with the teams we pick up use mirrors <clears throat> or if the jungle is too thick for mirror they'd get us close by describing where their position was and then they just pop smoke mm-hmm. and then you say okay i see orange smoke or whatever yeah, yeah that's us and, and you have their position exactly
0: yeah and duffy ends up using a mirror in this mm-hmm. all right going back to the book fast forward a little bit. airstrikes continued other teams of cobras worked vn af a1 sky raiders and u.s. jet fighters drop more Napalm and high explosive bombs on the advancing enemy as well. Even so the NVA attack intensified pressuring the South Vietnamese defenders The enemy overran security outposts they pushed into the perimeter of Charlie Two itself Human waves of NVA came forward shouting surrender. You'll live fight back You'll die, but the paratroopers fought vigorously picking up the closest targets aiming and shooting Hold the trenches don't fall back Fire, shoot those guys over there. Chaos ruled the front. It became an inferno of smoke, dust, flame, and noise. The world convulsed in a crescendo of crackling, cracking, gunfire and deafening explosions of artillery, the whine of attacking aircraft, the thunderous boom of their bombs, and the sucking roar of the napalm they dropped. Paratroopers fought with all they had. They fought with grit and determination. They fought for their buddies and the pride of the 11th Airborne. They fought inspired by those Vietnamese paratroopers who had gone before, those who had sacrificed so much in historic battles of old. They fought until their bullets were gone. After that, they turned to grenades and knives. Many died swinging their empty rifles as clubs. The brave paratroopers withstood the onslaught with fierce determination. Still, their enemy pushed, taking patches of earth inch by inch, paying dearly for every small gain. Finally, the NVA overran Charlie's southwest perimeter. They occupied much of 114-114. One, one Company's defensive position and paused to catch their breath among the mingled dead of both sides. Duffy got on the radio to Major Peter Kama at 2nd Brigade. Cellar 5 1, Cellar 5 1, this is Dusty Cyanide. Prairie fire, prairie fire, prairie fire. I am declaring a prairie fire emergency. We are being overrun. John defaulted to a phrase familiar to him from his earlier special forces work behind enemy lines in Laos. Prairie fire meant a special operations team was about to be overrun and all available assets were brought to bear. Peter Kama knew what John needed and translated the statement into his into words more commonly understood by conventional military forces. He declared a tactical emergency or TAC-E across all of two corps. This required every available asset to be redirected to support the paratroopers on firebase Charlie John Duffy would now get everything flying in the skies over central South Vietnam John May and hi got busier than they ever had been working flight after flight of supporting aircraft Prairie fire emergency Yep,
1: and this is the end is coming and uh, it is pretty amazing with all the firepower that they had at their disposal, how, how determined the NVA were to carry this attack to, its, uh, to, to fruition. Uh, as they just kept pouring battalion after battalion in there uh, until they carried the day. But they suffered horrendous casualties, which we, we talk about the impact of that as, as we get to, at, the, at the end of the book.
0: Fast forward a little bit. The enemy delayed only a short while before getting back up and continuing their assault. They were about to overrun the 11th Battalion. Dusty Cyanide, this is Cougar 3-8 inbound. Welcome back, 3-8. Enemy advancing rapidly from the west and southwest. Battalion strength, heaviest from the southwest. Expand on that formation. Roger, Dusty. We'll give them hell. And again, it's incredible. You can hear some of these calls. Yeah. I listen to these calls. Cougar 38 and, and, and Duffy just sounds calm cool and collected it's hard to hear him sometimes but when you do hear him it's like they're talking about you know pass me the ketchup
1: yeah well because he knows to survive he has to be you can't you can't get in a panic and start screaming and hollering on the radio and nobody's going to understand what you're saying or what you need so uh, to survive he has to stay calm and, and measured
0: Cougar 38's heavy fire team of three Cobras came in from the northeast. They drew intense enemy, aircraft fire, enemy anti-aircraft fire dropping to just above the trees to minimize their exposure. They flew past Duffy in May, then continued right into the face of the attack. Duffy commented, what guts those guys have. Never seen anything like it. Right on the deck. Those crazy bastards are going to kill themselves to save us. Goddamn heroes. Each aircraft fired its entire ammunition load on one pass. Pilots launching pairs of rockets as fast as their fingers could press the firing button. Front seat gunners working their turret weapon incessantly, raining death and destruction. They annihilated the breadth of the attacking formation. The enemy staggered. He stumbled. He fell. He pulled back, needing to regroup once again. The courage of those three Cobra crews stalled the NVA attack for now. There was no doubt the Resolute Enemy would come again. May needed his other company. He ordered them to consolidate hours ago. Where were they? He called 113 Company again. 403, what's your progress? Big Hung responded, we're trying lots of enemy around us. May sternly ordered, break through and get down here. Do it now. We need the battalion together. Roger. May frowned in frustration. High used the temporary lull to move about and assess the situation. He ran quickly among the defenders, by then compressed into a much smaller circle. They had something over 100 effective fighters left of the 471-man battalion. High moved from position to position, utilizing trenches as much as possible, but at times dashing into the open from foxhole to foxhole. He spent a few minutes talking to each leader and spoke with paratroopers along the way, bolstering their will to fight by whatever means remained. High finished his circuit and rejoined May in the command post trench. Dusk settled in. May called Duffy who joined them there. Blood seeped from a gash in John's right shoulder. He'd been hit yet another, yet again by another shell fragment. High shook his head and began his report. We in bad shape, many dead, more wounded. I count only a little over a 100 still can fight. Most of them hurt, not much ammunition, some have no ammo, even after take from dead. No way to stop next attack. Next attack end 11th Battalion. May looked straight in High's eye for, eyes for a time, studying him, digesting what he just said. He turned to Duffy, ready to speak, but paused. Both minds churned through options. High spoke again. Casualty high, ammo run thin, cannot stop VC, most of Battalion dead. We stay longer, all die. Should leave. He leaned close to May and spoke in Vietnamese. Gotta get get the battalion off this fucking hill before the enemy comes again. May nodded and responded in English. Yes, we order withdraw. Duffy had a plan. He'd risk his life to try and save what was left of the battalion. It seemed insane, but it made perfect sense to him. I will stay and try to delay the NVA. Maybe we'll get some more air in time to make a difference. May insisted, I stay with you. We team. American and Vietnamese, we fight together. John nodded, full of determined grit. John Duffy and Le Van May would form a two-man rear guard to allow what was left of the battalion to break contact and escape. Two men against two enemy battalions may faced his operations officer with a look of resignation you lead the battalion off Charlie high major Duffy and I will delay as long as we can we're your rear guard go about 800 meters northeast and wait for 113 company I'll tell big hung to move east until he finds you 113 is in good shape they have ammo and only a few casualties you'll be okay High saluted, high saluted, responding smartly, yes, sir, we go. He rallied the surviving paratroopers, those who could walk, helped others who couldn't. High led the way off the hilltop toward the sanctuary of the jungle below.
1: Excuse me, it's a little emotional listening to you read all that. Um, Yeah, so that is the most heroic part of the whole, and there's heroism throughout the book, uh, but that is the most extraordinary act of the, of the whole uh, story is, is John Duffy and Ley Van May uh, deciding to be a rearguard, uh, you know, not knowing what their chances of survival would be, and, and it looked pretty bleak But to, to do that, uh, to allow the rest of the battalion to, to try to uh, withdraw and get off the hill and, and
0: survive. So, yeah, I don't know what they thought their chances were of survival. <laughs> we'll have to, I mean, here they are getting crushed yep. for 11 days at this point, 12 days at this point. And a couple, couple weeks. The NVA is fighting like they've never seen them fight before. Yep, they keep coming, wave after wave yep. after wave. The NVA has ammo. The NVA has resupply.
1: It has that artillery pounding and, yeah, the uh. anti-aircraft. And, and you know, some some would say, hey, guys, you had the order to fight to the death. What the hell are you doing withdrawing off the hill? But they had no further means to resist. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were just down to a few bullets left and guys swinging their weapons uh, to to uh, fight the enemy. So I think High was exactly right. The next wave of attack from the NVA would have just killed, killed all of them yep. and, and not accomplished anything. So the decision was made to withdraw the survivors that they had which at that point were just over a hundred people Out of a 471 man battalion to go ahead and try and get those guys off off the hill
0: So there's two of them left As dust turned to darkness a strange silence brought a chill It was as if May and Duffy were in the eye of a storm the enemy had fallen back for the moment. The artillery and mortars fell still. Their battalion had gone. There was no chatter on the radio, not a sound on the hilltop save the whimpers of the dying. They sat alone on the edge of what had been Firebase Charlie waiting warily for their enemy's next move, not doubting for a moment he would attack. It was dark. Suddenly the silence broke. Whistling projectiles hurled through the air. Incoming enemy artillery erupted across the hilltop. One shell burst not far to their front. The explosion rocked them, the blast deafening the night. For an instant, it lit their dirty, blood smeared faces, their hollow eyes set in hopeless determination. A few more shells crashed around them, none as close as the first. Each blinding flash shone upon the corpses. Lying across the battlefield, gruesome evidence of the fight that had raged over the past days. Hundreds lay dead over the hilltop outpost. The bodies of South Vietnamese paratroopers mixed with those of their determined North Vietnamese enemy. The explosion stopped. The dark returned. Only the moans of the wounded pierced the silence of the night. The stench of death filled the nostrils of the last two men fighting. Smoke choked their lungs. They waited in anticipation. They heard orders shouted from across the field. They sensed movement as another attack wave swept toward them. The American advisor leaned close to his Vietnamese counterpart and exclaimed, Shit, here they come again. The reply, in broken but well practiced English, was resolute. I know we fight, we fight more. The enemy once again rose from the darkness tearing through the night coming at them as vague shapes screaming and shooting throwing grenades as they advanced closer and closer still both John Duffy and lay Vaughn May knew this was the final assault bullets whizzed by them a grenade exploded ripping a hole in May's chest he gasped for air Duffy, already wounded several times himself, looked over his left shoulder. He nodded, satisfied, seeing the decimated force, all that was left of the once mighty 11th Airborne Battalion escaping down the hillside. John and May were all that stood between the remnants of the battalion and their annihilation. They'd been out of food for days. They had no water left in their canteens. Their ammunition was nearly gone, but still the Americans and the American and his South Vietnamese comrade fought and still the enemy came. There was no talk of surrender. No thought but to kill as many as they could before they were themselves cut down where they squatted on the edge of the air of their abandoned positions. Levan May strained to speak. Fight, Duffy. Fight they battled with everything that remained in their hearts and souls but the end of their road was only minutes away they knew they were about to die John Duffy sensed his mortality as words welled in his soul death's moment is near I can feel its flame soon it will be here it seems strange no more Duffy's radio crackled, Dusty Cyanide, this is Panther 1-3, back with you. Duffy looked at May, hot damn. He grabbed his radio handset, Roger Panther, welcome back. Dusty, we're inbound with Rockets, 40 Mike Mike, and Minigun, thought you might need a little more help. Through the blackness, the Cobra crews saw fires and chaos on Charlie. They could only imagine the desperate situation on the ground. Duffy radioed the Cobras. Enemy broken, broken through on the southwest. Charlie overrun. There are three prominent fires on the hilltop, one big and two small. The large one is on the southwest part of the base. You see one small fire short distance north and another 100 meters east of that. We are on the north edge of that eastern small fire. Need you to shoot right in front of us just to our west, but real close. Roger, Dusty. We got them. The Cobras rolled in, firing. Duffy adjusted their runs closer. The attacking enemy was about on top of him. He cut down several with his car 15. May did the same with his M16, but that didn't slow them down a bit. The enemy was still charging, just feet away, as the Pink Panthers began another gun run. The head of the closest soldier exploded, hit by a 40 millimeter grenade from one of the Cobras. His reflexes kept his legs moving for a step or two before he crumbled to the ground so close that blood and tissue splattered on Duffy and May. Right there, Panther, keep it up. The Cobras kept it up. Duffy delighted in hot shell casings raining down from above. After a number of attack runs, Duffy called, Panther, Panther lead, this is Dusty Cyanide. You have broken the enemy attack for now. Hundreds of bodies on the field, maybe a 1,000, but we cannot hold. After a short break, he continued, we are leaving Firebase Charlie now. Stop them from following us, whatever it takes. Put your stuff all over the hilltop now. The two ran for their lives. May 1st, followed by Duffy, U.S. Army Special Forces Major John Joseph Duffy was the last to leave Firebase Charlie. Another Cobra flight joined the team with Lieutenant Forrest Snyder in one of the front seats. That gave Panther 1-3 a heavy team of four aircraft. Forrest was the best gunner the Panthers had. The team fired everything they had at the hill that had been Firebase Charlie. They turned toward home. The flight picked its way through the mountains and valleys below a worsening layer of scud clouds and a pitch black of night. What was left of the 11th Airborne Battalion moved toward the refuge of the valley below.
1: That was the end of the fight on Firebase Charlie. Yeah, and I, you know, I I, I flew that. I was Panther One Three. Was Dan Jones in lead, and I was Panther Three Six flying his wing. We knew it was a bad situation at the time, and we did all we could to help. But we had no real full appreciation of everything that was going on down there until I got all this information together to write the book. Uh, John Duffy. Well, he credits his life to several things, including Cougar 3.8 that came in there that day. But he said that that night uh, he is – and Levan Van May, the same thing. They are alive today because of what we were able to do uh, for them, uh, which was just you
0: know, doing what we could to help. Uh, yeah. So you're flying in this – was, this was in pure darkness.
1: Yeah, we got there. That second run was night. It
0: was dark. And, and clearly you guys don't have night vision at the time. Nope. So it is, you're looking at blackness.
1: Yeah, it was, it was awfully dark. The weather was not good and getting worse, and we could see the fires on the hilltop. And, yeah, we're out there doing what we can do in that situation. And it was Duffy's description of those fires and where he was in relation to those fires. And we just put our rounds down. And as Dan Jones recently commented to me, he said, hey— We weren't exactly sure of of how close we were shooting to him. We couldn't see him. We could see the fire, and he was just off the edge of one of the fires. Uh, So it was just, you know, by the grace of God, we were able to get those rounds right where they needed to be and then move them a little bit as he would give us adjustments and that as close as we were firing to him, particularly with rockets. Rocket is not (laughs) – those 2.75 rockets are not a point-fire weapon. It's not like the Hellfire and tow missiles that we've had since. Uh, so lucky that we could get them close enough to be doing the good that needed to get done and, and not inadvertently uh, do damage to those guys. I mean, we could have blown Duffy and May off the map if we'd have been just a few feet off of, of where we were putting our, putting our rounds. Uh, and, and John Duffy says to this day one of the most glorious feelings he's had in his life is feeling hot brass rain down on top of him.
0: <laughs> can, you, can you see the targets at all? Or are you shooting just based on, hey, 50 meters in front of the fire to the east, that's what we're doing? A,
1: no, we couldn't see any people uh, at all, just the fires and and we're, our rounds were hitting and, and exploding.
0: And Because there's, there's no there's no like overhead artillery putting a loom up or anything, it's just dark? Just dark. How long were you on station for?
1: After the other flight came in, that I don't you know, it's hard to say. Uh, I don't know, I guess would be the best answer, but I, I would imagine
0: like 10, fif- 15 10, minutes, 10, 10, 20 15, minutes at the 10, most. 10,
1: 15, 20, yeah, 20 at the most, 10 to 15 probably. Because um, we got there, we made multiple runs, the other fire team showed up and joined with us, and they they were fresh on, on ordinance and everything, so they had a lot more to put down on the hilltop. Um, maybe 20 minutes, probably closer to 15.
0: You know those uh cheesy action movies where there's like the hero is barely getting away as you know as, yep. the, as the explosion <laughs> happens like <laughs> there you go but it doesn't actually happen in real life except for it happens here. Yeah. <laughs> uh after this insane moment of hot damn the cobras are here to bail us out. Yep. Uh John and May stumbled and fell through the darkness moving quick swiftly in spite of their painful injuries. Once the North Vietnamese had taken the hill, the enemy advanced, halted for the moment. The attackers too devastated to continue. The Cobras had saved the day. Amazingly, Duffy and May were still alive. They started out again, Duffy making an urgent call on the move, any Covey, any Covey, this is Dusty Cyanide. We are withdrawing off Charlie. Two NVA battalions in the open on a hilltop. Request immediate diversion of a B 52 arc light strike to Charlie. This is Covey 531. Standby, Dusty. Only a few minutes later, Covey transmitted Dusty affirmative, Carbon Outlaw, diverted arc light for your target. ETA 20 minutes. You need to be 500 meters distance. Be in defilade. Open your mouths and keep your heads down. Duffy knew he was only a couple hundred yards off the hilltop, but he needed his enemy bloodied so they couldn't regroup and pursue. Roger Covey, we will be over 500 meters clear. Let the bombs fall. They moved quickly, soon rejoining their battalion. High and Doc Lou were shocked they were alive. Tired, exhausted, and dragging their wounded, the battalion gained little ground, moving maybe another hundred yards before they heard the whistling bombs of death. Hundreds of 500 and 750-pound bombs demolished the NVA forces on Charlie. The paratroopers hugged the earth. Duffy and May lay prone under a tree that shook like a wet dog, showering them with leaves as the ground shuddered violently beneath them. A dark cloud of smoke rose from the carnage of Charlie. John lamented, Nothing could have survived. Two weeks of battle and an NVA funeral pyre. Corpses corpses sit as the victors atop their prize. I mean, what do you think the battle damage assessment was of that?
1: Yeah, well, it was, it, it inflicted, tremendous damage on the enemy and and i I think i mentioned later the impact it had on the whole battle in the central highlands Uh, it it, it thwarted their plans to quickly sweep down to take Kantum city and then cut south vietnam in half Uh, because of the damage that was done by all those strikes and and what it cost them to take charlie hill uh, that delayed their attack plans by a couple of weeks which gave the, uh, the the south vietnamese an opportunity to get another division up there and to get all prepared to, to take on this attack against the, uh, the city of Kontum, And in the end, the South Vietnamese prevailed with, with a lot of American air support. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they prevailed, and the enemy did not take Kontum City. Their attack went no further than that, and they ended up with withdrawing to, uh, uh, to isolated positions, really, in, in, until the peace agreements were signed.
0: The line was held. Yep, <clears throat> yep. Uh, these guys aren't out of it yet, though. April 15th, 1972. In darkness, the paratroopers followed Major Duffy down the mountainside. They carried those who couldn't walk. They struggled through the tangled jungle. Exhaustion numbed their senses. Even so, they still felt the pain that racked their bodies. Infected wounds screamed with every step. In spite of their misery, hope swelled in their hearts as they had left the carnage of Charlie Hill even farther behind. And then, of course, incoming, there's a... a, a friendly fire incident that right. takes place, which is awful. Um, now they've got more dead; or they got more wounded to carry. They have to leave some dead. High makes a radio call to his headquarters, Red River. This is zero zero six. We are off the mountain in a northeast direction from our old home, at the base of the ridge. I have about a hundred one hundred fifty many wounded. Request helicopter extraction. Over. Zero zero six, this is Red River negative. There are no Helos available. Walk out. Over. This is zero zero six. Roger out. Duffy saw high's disgust. What's up? No helicopter. We walk. <sighs> This is making me mad right now
1: (laughs) And they're not they're not out of the yeah not figuratively and literally they're not out of the woods yet
0: yeah, and then of course the enemy struck rat-a-tat crack crack boom boom ambush Machine gun and rifle fire snapped around them, mortars exploded everywhere, enemy soldiers attacked from the trees, men dropped, wounded and dead. Many of the younger green paratroopers out of ammunition and at their wits end broke and ran, mowed down in their tracks. The NVA 320th division commander had positioned a fresh force east of Charlie to cut off any withdrawal. The 2nd Battalion from the 48th Regiment was waiting in concealed positions. They hit the paratroopers hard. John Duffy raised his weapon and shouted "May Lin, We need to break out of this. Gather all the men you can. I'll lead, you cover me, and follow. Okay Duffy, we no surrender, we fight to death. John cocked his AR-15 and firing a few well-placed rounds led a desperate counterattack. Amazingly, they broke through the enemy and found a refuge a couple hundred yards north in the trees along the stream. Duffy puffed, we made it, how many do we have? May counted, 36 plus you, 37 total. We have Captain High and Doc Lou and others. May directed High, set a perimeter, redistribute ammunition to be sure every soldier has at least some. This is where we'll make our stand. Duffy's immediate thought was we need air, we need it now. He grabbed his handset to make a call, nothing, shit. May caught sight of his back. Duffy, you took a hit in the radio, big hole. It finished, you okay? Duffy, several times wounded, bloody, filthy, tired, head throbbing, body rife with pain, answered, yeah, I'm fine. He took the radio off his back and dropped it to the ground. He grabbed one of the two small aircrew survival radios he had clipped to his web gear, turned it on, and transmitted on the emergency frequency that all aircraft monitored. Any aircraft, any aircraft, this is dusty cyanide, tactical emergency. U.S. Air Force Captain Jim Higgins, a forward air controller on his way back to play coup, from supporting a special operation near the Cambodian border, heard the call. His fuel was low, but he responded, Dusty Cyanide, this is Covey 555. Covey, Dusty Cyanide, we withdrew off Charlie last night. I'm northeast of the hill in a small valley, just ambushed, many killed. We broke out, need helicopter extraction. I have 37, 37 packs, several wounded, need four helos. Roger, Dusty, stand by. I'll see what we can rustle up. As you guys are out there on these operations, like over... Does everybody kind of know who Dusty Cyanide is at this point? Is everybody by, tracking it? By this
1: time, well, we all did because the Panthers had been supporting him. Now, the unit that's going to end up coming in to now save the day yet once again is 3-5-CAV. They've not been involved in that operation up there at all to this point, so I don't think that they uh, knew Dusty Cyanide at that point, but they're soon going to find out who Dusty Cyanide is. And once we get into that part of the operation, that goes to that audio recording that I had yeah. that was recorded by one of the air crews. So the dialogue in there is word for word off that audio recording. And I'd comment on the dialogue in general. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a technique uh, that I use for a narrative nonfiction uh, but the dialogue obviously is is recreated. Nobody remembers exactly what they said, but I took great care to talk to each of the participants, and they saw all this dialogue uh, as as I developed it and so they agree that this is very close to the conversations that actually took place. so I, I use it to tell to tell their story. Uh, but as we get into the uh, into the the pickup here uh, at the end, that's word for word off that audio tape of what was being said in the in the aircraft.
0: Is Dusty Cyanide an issued call sign? Yeah, it was just a random, just ran- randomly yep, generated, random generated yeah. issued. I remember I used to get those, Uh then for some reason we started just generating our own. I don't know <laughs> if that was legal or not, but that's what we did. Uh, uh, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. They they do get the they get the helos in, and again, this is really cool dialogue that you that you quote in here. Between Undertaker and Embalmer, these are some good that's, call that's signs. That's our actual call signs. Yeah. <laughs> good to go, Undertaker twenty two. Now uh, those aren't
1: generated. The the air crew call signs we had them for our whole tour. Like, right, that's like, like we Pink were the Panther, Pink Panther's, right. and, and and they are uh, Gladiator was the company's call sign. Oh, uh, for the uh, for the unit that uh, worked Sog with us, these guys the Cav, Yeah, that Embalmer Undertaker was their guns, and Embalmer <laughs> is their uh, is their lift ships. yeah.
0: Uh, so these guys show up. Duffy radioed, Cobra, Cobra, they're 25 meters away. They're in that wood line. Go get them. Roger Dusty, we're inbound. Keep your heads down. The Cobras laid waste. And Bomber 6 called short final. The enemy opened up with small arms and machine gun fire. A B 40 rocket streaked past. The Huey pulled up and turned sharply to the left, climbing. The right. Door Gunner reported a jam in his machine gun. He was out of action. No more protective fire on the right side. More enemy pressed in on Duffy and May. They moved their group as fast as they could go. Undertaker Twenty Two kept track of them. Dusty, you still on the LZ or moving away from it? We're moving to the November. Roger. I'll be there. I'll be in there with twenty millimeter. Still got small arms. We moved. We moved another hundred meters. We're we're gonna stop here. We got five people left, so over this period, which I skipped, they're, they're picking up like as many guys as they can, and then they'd get shot out of a LZ, and then they'd keep moving. So they're down to five guys left.
1: Right, this is the last lift, the, the, fourth, last crew. the fourth lift.
0: And Bomber Six began another approach. Duffy popped his last smoke. Gibbs transmitted, I got yellow smoke. Duffy warned, still got small arms fire, still got small arms fire, automatic rifles, Undertaker added, still drawing small arms fire from the tree line down there across the trees at your 12 where the friendlies and the bad guys are in the trees and Bomber Six continued his approach. Duffy guided him down to the ground. The last five members of the 11th Airborne Battalion scrambled aboard, go, go, Duffy shouted. He stood on the landing strut, his firing his car 15 and helping the others in. An NVA soldier ran toward the helicopter, his arm cocked, ready to throw a grenade. Duffy cut him down. Lieutenant Long climbed in, followed by Corporal Long, Captain High, and Major May. Crack. A round blasted through the cockpit. Crack. Another passed just behind Dennis Watson's head. It hit Dallas Neeson. Did I say that name right? Neeson, uh, Neeson. Neeson. It hit Dallas Neeson in the back. As he fired his door gun, protecting the crew, he pushed his, his intercom button, hey, hit. Watson looked back, their eyes held for a moment, then Neeson's closed. With everyone on board, Duffy gave the other door gunner a thumbs up and the young man hollered on the intercom, go, 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 get out of here. Bullets riddled the chopper as it lifted. At 100 feet, one smashed into High's right foot. He fell backward out of the helicopter. John Duffy, still standing on the landing skid, grabbed hold of his web gear just as he slid by, stopping his fall and certain death. With help from May, he pulled High back in. May rendered aid. Duffy looked across the helicopter and saw Dallas Neeson hanging out the other side, held by his safety tether. John climbed in and moved over to Dallas, pulling him back inside. He patched the wound in Neeson's back with a plastic sealer and a bandage. He turned him over. Dallas had a much larger hole where the bullet exited his chest. It was bad. The wound bubbled. The bullet had hit his lung. John started patching and sealing the hole when the bubbles quit. Dallas stopped breathing. John tried mouth to mouth, nothing. Dallas Neeson died in John Duffy's arms. It had been five days since the enemy began their final all-out assault against Charlie. Five days of some of the most intense combat ever fought. Five days in hell, consigned to death, but committed to fighting with valor to the end. Indeed, it had been less than two weeks since the 11th Battalion, fresh from its duty in Saigon, had occupied Firebase Charlie on Easter Sunday. But that was a lifetime ago. Their world had changed. It was different from how it had been, and it would never be the same for any of them ever again.
1: <sighs> and thus ends the battle for Firebase Charlie.
0: Yeah, and, uh, and as you mentioned, uh, 37 out of 471 paratroopers made it out and and you did also mention that there were some stragglers that came in
1: right there's gonna be another group of about i think 20 that uh, the artillery uh, fo lieutenant lap uh, rallies uh, it took them several days though to get back to friendly lines and recovered and that's pretty well it a few other stragglers but uh, out of that 471 man battalion most killed or captured or missing and never never knew their status
0: John Duffy wrote a poem. Um, he ended up at the funeral of of Colonel Bao, posthumously promoted Colonel Bao. And he, he wrote a poem about that funeral. And again, this is from his book, which is called The Battle for Charlie. It's called The Commander's Family. Can you picture the scene? Incense burning, banners hung, casket draped, the moans and the weeping blend, sorrow hangs in the atmosphere, the commander's comrades gathered to offer their last salute, the young widow strong at first, but soon sorrow overcomes her. It's not the smoke which tears my eyes, although I have lit seven Joss sticks. The words are spoken for all to hear. Now it is I who must say the last. I will say the truth and how he died. He died leading the paratroopers he loved he died fighting for the freedom he cherished. He died a hero of his country. And that is certainly the truth. And I am certainly glad that you, uh, sir, have captured these heroics for for all of us to hear and understand. And you you mentioned this earlier. Um, We can be proud to report that Major John Duffy has been properly recognized for his heroics. He was awarded the Medal of Honor on July 5th, 2022, so just a few weeks ago.
1: A few days ago. A few days ago, really? Yeah.
0: So you went out there for that ceremony? I,
1: I did. I was there in the White House uh, with him, uh, with my wife and daughter, uh, the daughter who he danced with on the deck of the Midway, uh, uh, to be present. And it was it was quite a ceremony, long, long time coming. Uh, I think I'd mentioned he was put in for the Medal of Honor at the time. Peter Kama submitted him. It was downgraded to a Distinguished Service Cross, <laughs> Uh, largely John feels because all the eyewitness statements that he had at the time when Kama submitted it were Vietnamese statements and uh, and so it was not supported Uh, years later Peter Kama resubmitted uh, with the additional information had the audio recording now uh, had some eyewitness statements by others some of the air crews uh, but it took forever to wind its way through the bureaucracy and, and finally uh, got approval and was presented yeah, on July 5th last week uh, to, uh, to him. Uh, quite, a, quite an emotional event to be at. Uh Le Van May was there as well. Uh, there, there are some uh, – you can, you can find it if you just do a Google <coughs> search for John Duffy Medal of Honor. They've got some video uh, from the White House ceremony. And uh, as the president was making remarks just before uh, hanging the Medal of Honor on John – uh, he said, and we're, we're honored to have also here his Vietnamese uh, counterpart, uh, Le Van May, Colonel Le Van May. And uh, May stood up; had a suit on, but his red uh, Vietnamese paratrooper beret saluted the president. It was quite, quite a moving, uh, quite a moving experience.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm, that's just amazing that it, that that they did get it done. And and that he was awarded properly, um,
1: so deserved. I mean, you've read Medal of Honor citations before, sure. and this is so deserving of the Medal of Honor.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine the the person that downgraded this. <laughs> I get I, I get frustrated sometimes when I think about the people that sit around and downgrade awards. Yeah. Um, something tells me they probably shouldn't be in the positions where they're doing that. Um, the the uh, uh, another unbelievable part of this book that i found to be fascinating and inspiring was you know uh going into the aftermath and what happened to everybody after the war and really for me especially the vietnamese uh soldiers that i mean what 19 wasn't very much after this that south vietnam fell
1: yeah 1975
0: and so these individuals that had fought so heroically they all had to either get out of there, uh, or try and get out of there. Some of them served in prison camps and, and they all had the goal of making it to America. Yes. And it's also incredible what they all did when they got here. I think, I think it was may, is it may that ends up, he's working as a janitor somewhere. Was that may,
1: uh, he was yeah for a while and uh, and uh, where where'd he end up he was in Missouri for a time yeah yeah I think went. that
0: was it he and again read get the book
1: and going to school he was working yeah, yeah doing janitorial work going to school to get increase his education he ends up a highly successful uh, guy out here in Silicon Valley by yeah. the time it's all over and done yeah but
0: it kicks off with him being a I mean a highly decorated highly experienced to say the least yep war hero and he shows up here. Hey hey, well you can you can, you know, sweep up and work as a gender. Okay, that's what I'm doing then. Yeah. And then talks about that and, and how he made it through that and how all of their you know, all the Vietnamese came here, all their kids do wonderful. They're all hugely successful, Just, yeah. It's 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 amazing to hear that part of the story um of, of how it all turns out for these for these folks and of course never forgetting the incredible sacrifices of of the ones that didn't make it. Right the ones that didn't survive or the ones that didn't make it out of, out of Vietnam. Um, and what a horror, what a horror that is. Um, but man, the book is amazing. Like I said, I, I, I read a small portion of it today, less than 10% of the book today. Get, get the book um, so you can learn about it and get the full story. And, and by the way, if you haven't gotten through the valley, That was kind of a, for this podcast, that was sort of like a turning point in my mind in the podcast, just how powerful it was for me to be able to sit here and talk with you and the feedback that I got about that podcast, because it's hard for a normal person to comprehend the level of suffering that a person can go through and A, survive but then go on and thrive and carry on with life and 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 have an amazing attitude <laughs> you know i mean we were talking a little bit when we weren't recording and you know you are you know your back's a little bit sore or your <laughs> knees a little bit sore right um, and you're very thankful to have a sore back and very thankful to have a sore knee cuz if it wasn't for a sore ba- back and a sore knee the only way for you to not have a sore back and a sore knee would be you wouldn't be here right now.
1: That's right. I'd be laying dead in a cobra wreck, wreckage in the jungles of, of Vietnam. I'm, I'm very grateful for every day that I've had since that. I guess when you go through something like that, and I know I've talked to John Duffy and Leigh Van May, they, they just uh, have pure joy for every day that they've had since then, every day since Charlie is a, is a gift to each one of them.
0: Well, probably a good place to stop for now. Um, Echo Charles, do you have any questions? No questions today. <laughs> it's, it's hard to have any questions after today. this. Uh, sir, any any closing thoughts?
1: No, it's just, you know, this is an important story, so I'm glad that we had a chance to discuss it at the podcast. I hope the story gets read far and wide for, for John Duffy, for Leigh Van May, for Hyde Dwan, those three central figures of the uh, of the book. And just for the Vietnamese paratroopers, because they did uh, g- exhibit uh, extraordinary valor, really, throughout the, throughout the war. And they need to be put in a category separate from the Arvin that are dismissed as, uh, as not being heroic soldiers on the battlefield. These guys certainly, certainly were.
0: Well, uh, you've, you've certainly brought that to light. And everyone that hears this and reads your book will no doubt understand the, the bravery that they had and thank you once again for for coming um thanks for your service and sacrifice thanks for your support to the troops on the ground now that i have a bunch of friends that were sog uh they 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 love you guys so much for what you did for them so thank you for for supporting those troops on the ground and and thank you for your for your sacrifice as a, as a prisoner of war uh, and the rest of your service in the army. I know that that wasn't even the end of your career. You know, you went on for how many years did you end up serving 30, 30 years. So that was just the beginning. So thank you for all your service and thank you for, taking the time and making the effort to share these incredible stories with us, both your own personal experiences and the experiences of these other heroes so that we all can learn and we can all be inspired by you and by your comrades and we can all live better lives knowing and understanding that true heroes exist. Thank you, sir.
1: Thank you, Jacob.
0: And with that, Colonel Reeder has left the building. So awesome to be able to speak with him again. Uh, And man, Mm -hmm. those stories are crazy. When you start talking about having 70, 130 millimeter artillery rounds land on your position on a little knoll on a hilltop, Mm -hmm. or you start talking about having 51 caliber machine guns Shooting at you when you're flying in a helicopter Mm -hmm. Those are Those are those are not Possible to Explain Mm -hmm. to a human I I don't think you can do it I don't think there's words to explain
2: Yeah it doesn't seem And this is me coming From a perspective of not very much Understanding and knowing The magnitude Mm -hmm. Of these things, especially you know, I know what a, I know what a fifty caliber handgun sounds like. Yeah, feels like.
0: Yep. Fifty
2: one yep. cat times ten. Yeah. Getting shot at you and I'm, those are way bigger than. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Right. The the. Mm. And then okay, actually, this is a question I did have though, mm-hmm. while I'm listening to. St- this stuff, I I just dismissed it as something I'll never understand. Mm-hmm. I'll never, I I won't comprehend it. I don't know the feeling. I can imagine <laughs> it, or I, I I can try to imagine it. That's it. I'm not gonna imagine it. I, I understand that, but these terms,
0: artillery. Mm-hmm. What is that? Artillery. <laughs> yep. Artillery is a form of what's called indirect fire. And what indirect fire is, so direct fire is I aim a gun at you, I can see you and I shoot at you. Yeah. That's direct fire. Indirect fire is I can't, I don't have to be able to see you Mm. because it's going to launch at a high angle up and it's going to rain down from the sky. Okay. And that's what this is. These 130 millimeter cannons are, you know, a kilometer, two kilometers away. They can be really far away. You can't even see them. And they're just dropping big giant bombs on you from the sky that's artillery and it's really horrifying cuz you don't know where it's coming from yeah and there's nothing you can do to stop it it's it's it, it the round got fired you know a few yeah. seconds ago yeah, yeah. maybe like f- even even multiple like 10 seconds ago yeah like that's how long their flight can be yeah. their flight can be a really long time so yeah. it's just coming and there's nothing you can do about it now, if you're in an urban environment, you can get overhead cover. That's cool. That's you can survive if you have overhead cover. That's great. But if you're in a foxhole, mm-hmm. it's just a, it's just a matter of luck.
2: Yeah, and because it, it kind of seems like in that way where it's like a matter of luck, even for the guy shooting it, right?
0: Some but. level of luck for the guy shooting it as well. Except for the fact that when I I want to hit you. I'm not gonna fire one, I'm gonna fire 70. Yeah. And then my, my chances, <laughs> Cause, right? Because that's exactly what they were doing. Yeah. Like, hey, yeah. we're gonna hit this whole hilltop. Yeah. And you know how, like, oh, you talk about mortars and stuff <clears> where it's like. And mortars are also usually indirect fire.
2: Yeah. So it's kind of like it's bad. Okay, okay. So direct fire, right? Let's say, I don't know, someone's shooting and they're getting closer or something like that. Or the, uh, let's say you see, oh, I see a guy pointing a gun at me yeah. or whatever. You can I'm gonna. Shoot back. I shoot back. I can. Move. I can take cover, kind of a thing. Uh, we can relocate. Mm-hmm. Let me, let's just go over there, out of mm-hmm. the way, kind of a thing. This is my tactical genius coming out right mm-hmm. now. I know tactical. Uh, yeah, yeah, hell yeah. Uh, but, but artillery is kind of like boom. Uh, you know, you hear a mortar, or whatever. Where are you going to go? You could go into the to the in the line of fire or whatever. It's like just how you could like avoid it. Oh like, yeah, yeah. You could go right into it as well. It's yep. like you don't even know.
0: yeah. It's just a horrible, horrible. This is what you know. World War One, when they would just receive these barrages, that's why they got crazy shell shock. Yeah, that's why you see those guys that are ho- absolutely horrified because sense. they just got used to this extreme level of horror and this level of. It's like, you might think, oh well, it's just random. There's nothing you can do about it. But it's not even when you when you're receiving 70 rounds, it starts to not be so random anymore. They're eventually the odds are they're going to get me. Yeah, that's yeah. what's going to happen. So then, what is ordinance
2: then? Because I, you know, you hear uh, like artillery. You hear, oh, heavy artillery or the just what, ordinance is just the ordinance? rounds,
0: anything. The rounds, yeah, gen- more yeah. Gen- more of a
2: general term. Yeah. So
0: yeah, I mean, even y- a bullet for a for a handgun could be considered an ordinance, ordinance. but so could a, the round from a tank or uh, from a howitzer can also be considered or ordnance dropped from an aircraft.
2: Yeah, is a tank
0: round. That's like what? 120. 120, 120 oh, no. Is that Our artillery? Neighbors? No. I mean, no, it's not. Technically, it's a tank round. And right. and a lot of times that'll be direct fire.
2: Yeah, that's what I thought. Huh. All right. There you go. Yeah, that's crazy, man. I, a lot of times, even when you talk about it, you know, when you hear, anytime I think of grenades or... Artillery in this case or whatever like, you you know, you imagine like the concussion, right? Because even shooting a gun is more of a concussion than maybe the average person might think if they haven't been around guns. Well, what's you know? the
0: most scared you've ever been in your whole life? Scared?
2: <laughs> uh, whew. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, as a kid, I've been scared, but I'm scared, scared.
0: Did you ever think you were going to die?
2: Yeah, like in the water. I, I was at Waimea one time, mm-hmm. like North Shore on Oahu. And it was big this was in my the height of my cockiness in the mm, water check uh, and I went out on a day they I, there was a, uh, actually the surf contest wasn't going on in Waimea but it was going on at uh, Pipeline type. I think Pipeline check yeah and so but the waves were huge it was the kind of when the waves hit like it vibrated yeah.
0: the whole beach and
2: I was like oh yeah go, I'll go out they had lifeguards all just lifeguards just uh, round robin yeah, just, just saving, saving guys people. yeah yeah
0: were you uh, on a boogie board no body Swimming? surfing body yeah. surfing
2: so I went out and it it got ahead of me like for like seconds at a time. I didn't have to get saved, but um,
0: that I was. How pretty, long did you stay out for?
2: Like ten minutes, I would say.
0: Yeah. So imagine this. Imagine all that ten minutes. How long were you really scared for in that ten minutes? Like two minutes. Two minutes. Yeah. Okay. Now picture that two minutes compressed into five seconds, and then multiply it times seven hours. <laughs> Like, it's Ugh. horror, bro. Oh, yeah. These guys are in horror. Yeah. And you just don't know. Where, I mean, and eventually it's like, okay, well, if, uh, eventually you have to have the attitude of, well, if it hits, it hits. Yeah, Otherwise, yeah. I'm going to keep running around with my radio on John Duffy style and just yeah. keep calling for fire. Or you go, like, or you know how
2: you, your mind kind of goes in two directions where it either gets used to it or it gets, like, overwhelmed. Overcome. Yeah, like, yeah, your mind gets overcome. Yeah. yeah. So, like, you go nuts. You go crazy kind of thing. Holy cow. Yeah.
0: And then, and then uh, here's something I can't really relate to, but flying in a helicopter while there's 51 caliber machine guns trying to shoot you out of the sky. Yeah. And that's that's beautiful. And you don't even know where they are until they're shooting at you. That's how you get them is they start shooting. You see their tracers. You cross your fingers that they don't, the tracers don't hit you. And then you engage them back. Silver star citation for uh, Captain Reader for gallantry in action against North Vietnamese Army Forces 14 April 1972 while serving as a helicopter pilot supporting the combat actions of friendly Vietnamese forces in Kontum Province, Republic of Vietnam. The outnumbered ground forces were under heavy artillery fire, surrounded by anti-aircraft weapons, and under attack by enemy forces. Captain Reeder took out a number of lethal guns, all while under intense fire from multiple anti-aircraft positions and small caliber weapons. After rearming and refueling, Captain Reeder's team voluntarily returned once again to engage the enemy. In extraordinarily poor conditions of low clouds, haze, smoke, and deepening darkness, his team prevented the friendly force from being overrun. Captain Reeder's actions contributed to the escape of dozens of friendly forces and one American soldier. His extraordinary heroism and selfless sacrifice reflect great credit upon himself, the 361st Aviation Company, and the United States Army. And what's wild the, 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 that doesn't do this any justice at all like you would have to go and set up some sort of live Simulation where they're shooting 50 caliber rounds near you to understand what this is yeah. But then it's also interesting that he you know He obviously received this award and then goes back and just digs out and finds all this more even Information about what he didn't even he didn't even know how bad it was. He said it He's like I didn't know how bad it was yeah. he just sees darkness yeah. and he's shooting he doesn't even know that he's killing hundreds of enemy attackers. So, just awesome to be able to have a person like that here um, to to share stories with us. And if you haven't listened to Podcast sixty three yet, go listen to it. That was that's a, What he went through is crazy. It's crazy. I was I was reading through that book again. He thought he was going on, they told him it was going to be an 11-day march to get from the prison camp he was in in the South to get to the North. They told him it was 11 days. It ended up being. He didn't know if he was going to be able to make 11 days. He's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. He was wounded. He had dysentery. He was famished. He had infections all over his body. Mm. His ankle was like destroyed from his plane crash or from his helicopter crash. So he doesn't think he's going to make it for 11 days. It ends up being four months. Of walking, forced road march, and all that started just a couple weeks after this happened. So, all right. Uh, Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to support the podcast, and you want to support yourself, big time, get yourself some Jaco Fuel. By the way, the drinks taste good now. (laughs) 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 You You know what I'm saying?
2: I know what you're saying. Yes, We we
0: reformulated all. Jocko Discipline Go. We yeah. reformulated all the tastes. Uh, noticeably, too. That's the thing, no, too. Extreme. So it's not it's totally the kind different.
2: where, oh, yeah. okay, you know, you what you added
0: some more whatever yeah. you guys had. We reformulated the flavors. Yeah. It's a whole new deal. And it used to be, hey, you may or may not like this flavor. You may or may not like You might actually not like this. Now yeah. it's like you're going to like them all. yeah They'll all be a nine, and then one of them is going to be an 11, and that'll be your go-to.
2: Yep, and we all know which one that is. And But here's the thing, though, too.
0: Where, I like the mango now. Yeah. Okay, I didn't like the on. mango at all before. Well,
2: that was kind of your jam. <laughs> yeah, yeah now, hell yeah.
0: Now, it's our jam. It's kind of our jam. The, the sleeper's gonna be Dak Savage, Dakota yes. Meyer. That yeah. one is just a whole nother level. Yeah, it's still, to me anyway, the
2: ones that are, actually, I didn't taste them all. I, t- I tasted the mango and one other one. And they taste to me the same flavor, just harder in that di- that direction, where it's like a good, like more robust. Hey, just to be version. straight up,
0: just to cut through whatever it is you're trying to say. They're all sweeter now. Mm-hmm. They're they're all they all taste sweeter, and sweeter tastes better. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, jockofuel.com if you want to get some good tasting stuff. Mulk, by the way, yeah. Mulk, Don't ever forget about Mulk. Yeah, you can't forget about the Mulk. because. Yeah. <laughs> 'Cause when you're thinking I need that sweetness, mm-hmm. that dessert style, what is it called? Uh sav it's kinda savory and sweet at the same time. Yeah. You you're getting them both. Uh Yeah. You can get mulk, you can get joint warfare, super krill. Just good stuff for you. And 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 what I'm gonna stand by, we don't cut any corners. Mm-hmm. There's so many corners to cut yeah. when it comes to making Supplements, there's so many corners that you can cut. We're not cutting any of them yeah. on the drinks We're not cutting any of them on Jocko discipline. Go. There's no corners been cut. We could easily squeeze another Six cents out of this or four cents. No, we're not doing that. Mm. We're giving you monk fruit. We're pasteurizing That's what we're doing. It's across the board. Mm. So there you go. JockoFuel.com. good vitamin shop You can get the drinks at Wawa. You know, we have a you know We have a ready-to-drink protein coming too. do you know that
2: yes, yeah The perfect it's, mix, yeah. Well, works. then again, is there such thing? In my household, recently, you know, I got just got back from a trip. Moke mm-hmm. so is heavy in the rotation now. Mm-hmm. You know, you get back on the program, you understand. Mm-hmm. Well, for those of us who may or may not have fell, fallen <laughs> off the program for a week or two, whatever. Nonetheless, Moke is back in. But there is, the point is there is no perfect mix, though. Can there be a perfect mix?
0: If there is, it's in the RTD, the ready-to-drink that you can roll in and just get one.
2: That would make sense. Like the most, uh, what do you say, the most accepted, the most desirable mix.
0: The the peak of the bell curve flavor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Because sometimes, you know, you want to add a little bit of something in there. You want to add a banana. You want to add, you know, it depends on your mood is what I'm saying. But it'll be accepted widely, we'll say that.
0: We're rolling, also, HEB down in Texas. Yeah. We're, We're in there. We're starting to hit the major retailers across the country, right. convenience stores across the country. We're starting to get in there, so appreciate the support there. OriginUSA.com, we're making jujitsu geese in America, we're making boots in America, we're making jeans in America, and we're making hunt gear in America. Get, get, come and check some of that out, support America. So I was wearing delt, okay, so my last day in Hawaii,
2: we're flying out we had an afternoon flight so mm-hmm. we go we go you know my kids want to get shave ice and want to go shopping but right. i'm wearing the you know so i'm wearing delta 68 jeans you know how they're like they look real nice <laughs> and it, you know you usually know why you wear uh, surf shorts or something like yeah. this right but i'm wearing the like the jeans and like shoes cuz i'm going to the airport right. you know it's a yeah. whole thing so my brother's mother-in-law and the cousin um his wife's cousin mm-hmm. was were we ran into them at the mall. They're like, "Oh, what are you all dressed up?" For? <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> all I had was the Delta 60. Yeah. That's the way my my kids aren't so much anymore. But if my kids saw me wearing jeans, yeah. they would be like, "Oh, daddy, why are you so dressed up?" because yep. they'd never see me. in yeah. anything else but surf shorts. Yeah, flip flops, t shirt, uh, Origin USA. Check it out, OriginUSA.com. Don't forget about any of that. Get yourself some JockoStore.com stuff too. Mm-hmm. Rash guard. What else you got on there? Got
2: a lot of stuff. Discipline equals freedom. We got three versions now. Got an updated version. It's called standard issue. Standard-ish. Standard issue, yeah. It's like, this is the kind, this is, is the it one new? that. Is new?
0: Wait, the standard issue is new? Is new. Yeah, Man, the, you
2: see, the concept is new. I Well, well put it this way. I, the concept, I feel like, should have always been there, and we never had it. That's what I felt. I felt like it was lacking. Okay. So, it's a standard issue.
0: A I don't think I've seen this one yet. Nope, brand new. Okay.
2: So there's some some color schemes in there you may or may not recognize.
0: Hey, in That's the industry, don't they say colorways?
2: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> they do for so sure. You got some colorways. Oh, uh, don't do it, bro. Don't, don't, recognize. don't
0: do it to me. Don't do it to me. I shouldn't have brought it up. not even going to be throwing it out there.
2: I'm going to. I got to sound more official sometimes. Oh, but you might recognize them. So whichever one uh, resonates with you. That's the one you're gonna wanna get. If if not, you know, multiple, whatever. Either right. either way, we got some uh shirts, hats, hoodies. They say good. You know, the you just wanna represent. If you want to represent the path. Do you have a hat? A, t- uh, a hat that says good? No. That might be a thing. Yeah. To get it's possible. going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, noted. Uh, we also got the shirt locker, <laughs> the subscription, the one shirt every month. so these are different little bit different designs, a little bit different. People like these designs. Even people who don't know about it. They ask, in my experience, people have asked, where'd you get that shirt? (laughs) For real. I'm not joking. But yeah, you get a new design every month. Uh, That one's a good one. So check that out too if you like that one. All right. Awesome.
0: Don't forget about the underground, Underground jockounderground.com. We owe some of those right now. Yeah. We owe some jockounderground.com. That Mm -hmm. means we're going to dig through, answer your questions. We got a bunch of questions uh, that if you're on jockounderground.com, you can submit the questions. We answer them. So... We'll get those out to you soon. We've got a YouTube channel. I'm the assistant director, sure. Echo. Just post them, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he hits p- upload, is sure. that what it's called? It's uh, got a bunch of books. Hey, books here, Through the Valley by William Reader. Extraordinary Valor by William Reader. You heard me cover one of them today. You heard me cover the other one in the past. These are just unbelievable books. Only Cry for the Living by Holly McKay. Check that out. Final Spin. You might want to get that book soon before the movie comes out. So you kind of can get that vibe on it, which is cool. (laughs) I've written a bunch of other books on leadership. Check them out. Speaking of leadership, echelonfront.com. If you need help inside your organization, go to echelonfront.com. We solve problems through leadership. We also have an online training academy, extremeownership.com. You got a question for me, Get go on to extremeownership.com. You can ask me that question. If you want to help service members active and retired, their families, Gold Star families, Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a, an awesome charity organization. Provides veterans with help that they need. Go to americasmightywarriors.org if you want to help out. Also, you got heroesandhorses.org. Taking veterans out into the field, micah he's up there taking veterans out in the field getting their getting their brain body reset that's what he's got going on and it's awesome and if you want to follow colonel reader he's on facebook at william reader jr and then also on the twitter on the gram and on facebook echo is that echo charles i am at jocko willink of course be advised the algorithm's there and it's looking to grab you once again Thanks to Colonel William Reader, such an amazing human being, such an amazing man, such an incredible attitude. And thanks, of course, to the brave Major John Duffy, Major Le Van May, and the rest of our allies, our brave allies in the 11th Airborne Battalion who fought so valiantly, and to all the veterans of that war in Vietnam who did their best to protect freedom in the world. And thanks to all the military personnel around the world right now fighting to do the same. And the same goes to our police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all first responders. Thanks for what you do to keep us safe here at home. And everyone else, I want to leave you with part of Colonel William Reader's witness statement concerning John Duffy's heroic behavior on Charlie Hill. He says, quote, by the time our fire team of Cobra gunships returned to Charlie, the situation had deteriorated dramatically. When we arrived, it was dusk. Major Duffy had directed other attack helicopters in our absence and employed A-1 Skyraiders and jet fighters around the firebase as well. Nonetheless, the enemy continued their attack, and the situation for Major Duffy and his airborne battalion was deteriorating. The South Vietnamese defenders were being killed and their positions being overrun. Major Duffy told us he was wounded, but would continue to work us. His focus on the radio was entirely on doing what he could for his South Vietnamese comrades. At times, while he had his microphone keyed directing us, I could hear him giving orders to his counterparts who were fighting for their lives. I could also hear him dealing with casualties that were occurring all around him I never heard him express any concern for himself he would not ask for his own extraction he seemed committed to fighting to the death with his battalion as the situation deteriorated further he began asking for us to place our fire within three meters of his position I have never seen greater bravery displayed in combat. End quote. So there you go. There's the standard. Now go live better. And until next time, Zecco and Jocko, out.